welcome to episode 304 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, a literary podcast in four acts, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors still give voice to the written words. In act one, we check in with the host and we provide reading recommendations, and we feature author Tammy Harrow in her novel All the Salt and the Sea, a book about relationships that takes a reader from an Italian mountaintop to Paris to Switzerland and to St. Augustine, Florida. In Act 2, we have Charlotte Litt's Two Minutes of Tips, and we have an in-depth craft talk with USA Today best-selling author Jennifer Ruff about how she navigates the world of indie publishing and how she does it so well, with plenty of tips and recommendations for publishing independently and how to make money doing it. Plus, we feature a novel, The Groom Went Missing, a mystery thriller that is part of the Agent Victoria Heslin series. In Act 3, we have an in-depth discussion with five debut authors, Neil Carmichael, Amy Peacock, Emily Johnson, Tim Eichenbrenner, and Delphine McClelland about four topics important to writing and publishing one's first book, the steps they took and writing practices they adopted to write the book, what they did to take their book from first draft to final draft, how they chose to publish their book and why they chose that publishing path, and what they wish they had known before they got started about the process of writing and publishing their first book. In Act 4, uh, we'll have wrap-up and uh, we'll have our takeaways, and then we'll share with you uh, what's coming in the next episode. So, uh, hey, I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. So hey there, uh, Sarah and uh, Hannah. How y'all doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. <laughs> <laughs> we should be asking Hannah how she's doing because she's getting closer and closer to the date, right? Yeah, it's it's so funny because I feel like everyone this whole time is like, just wait. I'm like, eh, it's it's fine. Like, not a big deal. They're like, wait till the last month. You're going to hate your life. And I'm like, I, I do. <laughs> it's just there's not a whole lot of space in there. So I feel like I've got like a little monster trampling all over me. But, you know, <laughs> getting closer. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, before we get started here, I want to echo Sarah's announcement that we want to uh, engage with you, the listener. Uh, please go to our website. Uh, there's a contact uh, page there on our menu tab, and there's something there for, called listener feedback. You can leave us a voicemail or an email. And uh, just a little call to action here for you writers out there. We're going to do something fun in our first episode in September uh, on the topic of procrastination. Uh, I've written a blog post on that. We'll be talking about procrastination for writers and we'd love to have you as a writer call in and uh, leave us some feedback you can do it on the uh, on the speak pipe and we'll hear your audio voice uh, tell us how you procrastinate as a writer we'll drop you in the show and if you're not comfortable uh, you know with the audio just send us an email and give us something and we'll we'll put that in there too and so um, you know and if you don't get around to it we'll just talk about you about how you procrastinated right guys <laughs> Exactly. We'll put on the October episode. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. You were late getting here, so we put you in a later episode. Uh, another announcement uh, in community events here, Charlotte Museum of History has opened an exhibit on John Lawson, a British explorer who trekked through the Carolina colony starting in uh, South Carolina where 
near where Hannah is and in, uh, in Charleston and made his way uh, through the Piedmont, uh, came through Charlotte, uptown Charlotte at the time. This is the year 1701. And Scott Hewler wrote a book about this called A Delicious Country, and we had him on the podcast to talk about his book way back in episode 56. So you can go to our website, uh, check out episode 56 or anywhere on your podcast app. And if you're in Charlotte and you'd like to see that, go out go out to the Charlotte Museum of History and check that out. So with that, uh, what's up, host? What's up, Hannah? Not a whole lot. Like I said, just getting closer to my due dates. So just kind of staying inside and um, have a busy month ahead just because I head out on maternity leave next month. So I feel like my brain is in like 80 different spaces at one time, but I guess that's not as abnormal. (laughs) It's more so the fact that I can't move that well, but you know, just hanging out, getting stuff done and reading a lot of books, really Um, trying to get prepared to do as many of these episodes as I can before I leave. So we'll see how long I can hang out. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're cramming. We're cramming Hannah in in August. We're going to record about four four times here in August to get at least a couple of September episodes in. Uh, How about you, sir? What's up with you? Uh, not too much. I've been just writing away. I've got um, a feature that I'm working on right now that I'm waiting on notes on, and I've been doing some short fiction in the meantime. Uh, my husband actually just started a new job, so that's exciting for both of us. He finished his medical residency in June, and last week he just started a job at a clinic um, in Salisbury, so kind of near Charlotte. And so that's, that's exciting. Like it? It's been like a various... Yeah, he likes it so far. He likes the people he's working with. Um, Good experiences with patients so far. Um, It's a long, long journey through all the medical education and training (laughs) and residency and everything, as as Hannah and her husband know. So it's exciting to finally be on the other side of that. That's super great. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. Congratulations. Uh, And for me, well, what's up? I just got back from the beach. We had a great time last week. Um, Went down with uh, uh, my wife, Janet, and then Jordan and Simon, the best grandchild <laughs> in the world, came down and uh, so cute. <laughs> we had a good time. Yeah, yeah. He he was stealing the soles out of my shoes and uh, couldn't find them. And uh, but he had his first boat ride. We had a fun time. My son Hamlin flew in as a surprise. We had a little pre sixty fifth birthday party because we can't all be together then. And uh, uh, went out on the boat and had fun. And uh, let's see, uh, coming up this month in uh, August uh, August twenty third, uh, I'm the uh, Featured author at the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library Foundation's Final Drought. Come out to that on August 23rd at Town Brewing, and uh, we'll drink a beer and talk about deadly declarations. Uh, you can find information about that. I think we're going to put that in the show notes or in the mm-hmm. newsletter or something, right? Yeah. Yeah, we should okay. have it in both. Okay, great. That sounds super um, fun. Yeah, it'd be fun. Um, and then uh, also uh, appeared yesterday on the former Lawyers Podcast. Uh, Formerly a lawyer myself, uh, <laughs> full time, and so we talked about we talked about that and going from being a lawyer to being a podcaster and a writer and that kind of thing. So lots of fun there, and uh, I guess um, the uh, other thing I've been doing is watching this crazy show on Apple TV called Severed. Have y'all ever Severance? seen or heard about oh, this? Severance? Severance. It's Severance. so good. Yeah, oh show. my god, what do you think? <laughs> I'm like, that thing blew my mind. It like cut my head in four four parts. Did you finish it? (laughs) 
We f- I finished the okay. first season last night. We like binged it, binged mm-hmm. it yesterday. Oh and, my God. Uh, it's so <laughs> good. Did you guys watch it, Parks and... And the production design. Yeah, it really awesome is. Too. It's so like eerie. <laughs> you know what I mean? You like mm-hmm. watch it like, this is creepy. <laughs> Did you guys watch Parks and Rec? You mean the original su- sitcom? Yeah, well, it's Parks funny to see or? Adam Scott like in such a serious role from oh, like right. Party Down <laughs> or Parks that's and Rec. Where saw, yeah, that's, that's where I saw... That's where I couldn't remember where yes. I'd seen him. He's okay. so serious. It's That's, like, well, I guess he's still yeah. kind of funny, though. I mean, there is some humor aspect. You know, it's like some funny mm-hmm. parts to Severance, but it's definitely more like terrifying to me. <laughs> it's just like, oh. Well, yeah. And for those of you who are listening who don't know what Severance is about, it, um, it is sci-fi, but it's sci-fi in a different kind of way. It's uh, the idea is they, they take these, uh, they put this chip in people's head and they can't remember what they do at work. And at work, they can't remember what they do. Like two different people. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Two different people. And when they get on the elevator at work and go down deep, they change into their work day. And it's uh, it's really stark white walls, lots of walk. I mean, it's just a very, it's not like you're on a, you know, marooned uh, Mars or some planet. But you feel that way a little bit, right? It's mm-hmm. so good. I think yeah. like that's probably one of the best shows I've seen this year. I feel like Apple TV has a lot of great stuff. Yeah, sure. I don't know if you guys have heard of, um, like, we, we'll probably do a whole episode on TV. Like honestly with Sarah's screenwriting, <laughs> like we could totally do this, but Apple right. TV has a new show called Blackbird Out. I don't know if you guys have seen it or have heard about it. Oh, I've heard it's really good. Oh, it's it very good. It's about a serial killer and just like, I love that kind of thing. So if you're into that, definitely watch it but severance is amazing all right all right well i got a soft track this is not charlotte tv podcast you, you never know, know. part this two second charlotte, chapter Char- yeah charlotte readers podcast and, and that's a nice segue into what we've been reading and uh, we'll start with uh we'll start with sarah um sure so recently i read a book called leave the world behind by ruman alam Um, which is, it was really good. It's a thriller. It's about this family who normally they live in New York City, but they're on vacation kind of like out in the sticks in New York State. And while they're out there, something happens. There's some kind of big disaster that goes down. They think in the city and maybe in other parts of the world, but communication is all cut off. Like they can't get news alerts or anything, so they don't really know what's going on. Um, So as the story unfolds, they're like getting clues about what's happening and trying to figure it out. And is it safe to stay where we are? Is it safe to leave? Um, And the people who own the house that they're renting come back there to kind of seek shelter and they're staying with them. So it's sort of about um, this disaster unfolding and also the dynamics between the six people in the house. It's really good. I think it was a finalist for the National Book Award, I believe. Um, So a very good, like, suspenseful thriller with some kind of social commentary, environmental commentary woven in. Um, Really enjoyed it. A good mix. That's great. Yeah. How about you, Hannah? Um, Most recently... I don't know if you guys just heard that. But my dog's just barreled down the <laughs> hallway. Um, <laughs> I read The Secret History by Donna Tartt. And I think I'd mentioned The Goldfinch, actually, in a, in a recent episode where I was like, it just went right over my head. Um, but this one was really good. This was her first book ever. And it's about kind of a group, an elite college uh, classics course with six and the six students that are in it. Um, and just kind of their relationship with each other. And it's almost kind of cultish, um, like a secret society type of thing. And uh, there's like a, a murder that happens with one of their classmates. So there's sort of a little bit of a crime story in there. But also just like I think the overall idea is just that journey of good versus evil and that and how you become 
kind of an evil person um so but it was it was a long book it was very long I feel like all of her books are a little bit on the longer side but it kept my attention the whole time and I was just like this is insane so (laughs) it was really good good. well before I give you mine that because you mentioned that book uh, uh, Alyssa Pressler with S Novel Books that's one of her book recommendations. I'm gonna play her little oh, really? recommendations for, for for the week, and we'll mm. we'll listen to her, and then we'll come back and do mine, and then we'll do uh, really Mark good. West as well. So let's let's listen cool. to uh, Alyssa. Hi everyone, my name is Alyssa, and I am the owner of That's Novel Books, a local used bookstore located in Camp North End. I'm calling to give you uh, two recent books that I've read as a recommendation. I really enjoyed both of them. The first is The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Now, I did not love The Goldfinch by her, and so I was a little nervous to read this book, um, but everyone who I have ever spoke to about it has highly recommended, and I have to say it lived up to the hype. The writing was beautiful. The story was interesting. The ending was wonderful. I highly recommend it. The other book that I read recently and really enjoyed was We Were the Lucky Ones by Georgia Hunter. This is a heartbreaking story about a Jewish family during World War II who um, all of them actually managed to survive, which is uh, almost unheard of. Um, But it just tells the stories of all of the different family members and their journey during the war and how they managed to survive. And it is a true story. It is Georgia Hunter's family. I um, haven't cried reading a book very recently until this one, and it had me in tears several times throughout. It is extremely emotional, but beautifully written, um, and the type of book that you just can't put down, except when you really need to, because it gets a little too intense. So those are two books that I've read recently that I really enjoyed, and I hope you enjoy them too. So how about that? She uh, That is so crazy. That makes me feel better, though, because I always felt really weird being like, I wasn't a big fan of The Goldfinch because people just love that book so much. But I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that makes me feel a lot it's better. It's really brave yeah. to, to say that you like or that you didn't like a book that people love or that won a bunch of awards yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> it feels like very taboo at first. And I'm like, I can't even front this right yeah. now. <laughs> and you wonder, you wonder sometimes how when people just saying, that, yeah, they loved it even though they didn't. So, mm-hmm. you know, so. Well, all right. Well, I I just read a book this uh, past week at the beach that I really love, The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls. And um, it's got uh, such great characters. I mean, if you didn't read The Gentleman in Moscow, uh, go read read that as well. That's a really good book. This one's a little bit different. It's a a road trip type book, um, but the characters are very unique. An 18-year-old Boy, he just gets out of reform school, and he, he comes home to find uh, his father's died, and he's got to take care of his eight-year-old brother. And uh, his eight-year-old brother is just uh, a crackerjack reader, knows it all, and uh, has a map. And he wants his brother to take him to California because their mother, who deserted him about eight years earlier, uh, sent them postcards uh, from these uh, little places along the Lincoln Highway, which is the first highway apparently in the U.S. from New York City and Times Square all the way to San Francisco in one of their big squares. And so his his idea is let's go follow where our mother went. And yet they get sidetracked and end up heading in the opposite direction to start with. And there's a big mystery and so forth. So it's a lot of fun. Good, good, good writing. Um, the other book I read this week, uh, which we might, we might get her on the podcast if we can connect all the way from here to, to Denmark, but, uh, <laughs> 
Katrine Engberg wrote a book called The Harbor. She is apparently a best-selling uh, mystery writer uh, in Denmark. This book's set in Copenhagen. I didn't know much about Copenhagen or, you know, being on the sea there. And it's, it's set in the harbor, and there's a sort of a kidnapping, and they can't find this kid, and they don't know what's happening. And it's a lot of good intrigue in it, and so, you know, a lot of fun to read. So those are the two I read. I could— uh, I could tell you some more I read this past week, but I think I'll save them because we're recording a lot of episodes this month. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll hang, I'll hang <laughs> I'll on to those. And we'll mention them another time. But uh, Sarah, you had some Instagram suggestions too, right? Yeah, we had a couple of people chime in on Instagram and recommend books. Um, Sharon Duquette recommends Two Nights in Lisbon by Chris Pavone. And Joe Congle recommended a book that he wrote called Deadly Passion, a Tony Rizzolcio PI story, which I believe he said is set in Charlotte. So thanks for those. We love getting those local recommendations from listeners. Yeah. And let me just jump in here. I like that, um, you know, <clears throat> we, we keep um, talking about SpeakPipe and this thing is very easy to use that I've found. Um, you know, if you've got a book out there, I'm just, I'm doing this off the cuff. I hope it's all right with my co-host, but send us a uh, 30 second or less uh exciting pitch about your own book um you know we might uh, be able to put that on uh, this will this will cause you to practice uh that elevator pitch really hone it down get it to 30 seconds and if it's really intriguing that might even be better for us than you sending us an email asking to be on the podcast it might cause us hey maybe to reach out to you and have you so take advantage of speak pipe tell us about your own book work on that 30 second uh elevator pitch and send, is that okay guys did i do that okay yeah that's a great idea <laughs> <laughs> just kidding so, yeah, so, delete no. them all <laughs> I like see how collaborative we are here uh, just kidding alright well we have uh, we have another contribution in our in our you know reading section uh, with uh, Mark West at Story Charlotte blog but his a little bit different uh, and you'll hear him talk about it right now so here we go hello this is Mark West with the Story Charlotte blog and today, my recommendations are not books, but journals. I want to recommend two brand new journals that have ties to our city and our state. The first one is the debut issue of the new journal that's being published and sponsored by Charlotte Lit. And it's called Litmosphere, like atmosphere, but Litmosphere. It's the very first issue, and it is a remarkable debut. They have a lot of wonderful contributions. I understand that 450 submissions were sent in, and out of that, they ended up publishing 48 phenomenal pieces, including short stories, poetry, creative nonfiction. It's a wonderful addition to the literary scene here in Charlotte and the larger region, and I highly recommend that you check it out. Um, you can find out more information about it by going to the Charlotte Lit website, and they have a link to the journal there. Now, that's a brand new journal, but in the same category of literary journals, one of the more established journals in our part of the country is the North Carolina Literary Review. And they have a brand new issue uh, that came out uh, this summer, and it's structured around the theme of writers who teach and teachers who write. This journal has richly illustrated articles and short stories and poetry, and a lot of it deals with 
The interesting connection between teaching and writing includes articles and pieces by people who are, in fact, both teachers and writers. And so if you're interested in uh, learning more about this, I suggest you check out this journal. One of the things it includes is a wonderful interview with Wiley Cash, who is a wonderful writer who lives here in North Carolina. And I enjoyed the interview and I recommend that you take a look at it. So those are my recommendations. And I hope you take the time to check out these literary reviews. They are important sides to the literary scene here in Charlotte and North Carolina. Thank you. All right. And thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, Sarah and I are both members of Charlotte Lit. And mm-hmm. uh, I know, Hannah, you're probably familiar with the North mm-hmm. Carolina Literary Review as well. You've had authors who yeah, it's a great you've represented mm-hmm. who've appeared in there. Yeah. Yeah, and I've got that debut issue of uh, Litmosphere as well. It's really good. There's a lot of good stuff in there. So I definitely recommend checking that out. Yeah, check check both of those out. And also, um, you know, next time they have a submission, submit and uh, try to get uh, your work uh, in there. They have, I think, poetry, short fiction, longer fiction. Uh, so a lot, lot of variety there. And uh, I love the mention of uh, Wiley Cash there as well. Uh, we had him mm-hmm. on the podcast. You can go back and listen to his episode. And um, I was actually listening to uh, – I'm going back now and listening to previous episodes and making notes of uh, little quotes that people left, little nuggets, because I'm thinking about writing a book that uh, – not writing a book, but uh, I'm compiling quotes from the podcast over over the years. And uh, when I was listening to one of his episodes recently uh, – that we did because we did one for the regular podcast and for Patreon. He talked about this idea of um, rejection and uh, getting critiques on your work. And I just thought his description of it was so great because he talked about how, he tries to explain to students that look now when you when we critique your work, you know, don't just put your head in a hole and go away and feel like it's all over and mm-hmm. throw it out the door and whatever. And he, and he likened it to what if you were making furniture or what if you were, uh, you know molding pots or you were planting a garden and somebody came up to you and they said, you know, the hinges on that cabinet you're working on aren't aligned just right. Or, you know, you're, you're going to put that pot in the kiln at too hot a temperature. It'll crack if you do that. Or, you know, you haven't planted your plants deep enough in the garden. He said, would you go in there and just pull your garden up and throw your furniture right. away mm-hmm. and crack your pot? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. You'd listen to it and you'd get, I just thought that was a great, piece because we've all been there sitting around letting people just attack our work right Sarah right Hannah yeah that's a great analogy especially because like say you you make a a pot a piece of pottery and someone tells you you're going to put it in at too high of a temperature they're not saying that everything else you've done with the pot is terrible and that you should just throw the whole thing out like they're just trying to help you preserve the good work that you've done better like you you don't mess it up yeah exactly yeah. So anyway, so yeah, y'all can go and listen to, to Wiley Cash there. But hey, we're going to shift uh, in this act one to an author feature, which we have. And uh, I met this author um, through, um, it's called a writer support group that Lainey Cameron and Charlotte Dune started. And believe it or not, writers do need support. We get <laughs> on, we just talk about issues and things, people from all over the country. And uh, I met Tammy Harrow uh, there, and then she reached out to us and and Sarah read her book, and Sarah, you're going to talk about her and for the lead-in to this little segment. 
Yeah, so we've got a wonderful debut novel by Tammy, Tammy Harrow. It's called All the Salt in the Sea. Um, a little bit of background on Tammy. She is an international solo traveler, which I think is so interesting that she does a lot of travel by herself. Um, she writes, she's a photographer. She has spent a lot of her life in the publishing industry, both in newspapers and working for various Florida magazines. I, I think she's um, based in St. Augustine these days. And every couple of months, she escapes to a new city or country in search of adventure. Along the way, she finds interesting stories to share with the world. Her work has appeared in Women's Day, Budget Travel, Social and Old Life City magazines, Bacopa Literary Review, and also on CNN, MSNBC, and National Geographic. Um, she has her bachelor's in journalism from the University of Maryland, and she lives in historic downtown St. Augustine, Florida with her husband, and as she puts it, her two freeloading cats and one disobedient dog. <laughs> um, she also has three kids who have flown the nest, but they come and visit frequently. And her book, All the Salt in the Sea, is about this woman named Abby West. Um, in her first year of medical school, Abby had goals for the future, but they were derailed by an unexpected pregnancy. And she discarded her dream of becoming a physician in favor of being a wife to one. Um, now the book catches up with her 19 years later when she has found out that her husband has a secret son from an affair. And so she is devastated by this betrayal. She flees to her grandmother's hometown on the Amalfi Coast. Um, there are some beautiful scenes in Italy. It's, it's a good book to kind of vicariously travel through. And while she's there, she meets Daniel Quinn, a former American soldier turned photographer. Um, and they travel across Europe together. She begins to imagine a new life, one without her controlling an unfaithful husband. And she's empowered by this newfound sense of freedom and courage. Um, she returns to St. Augustine to settle things with her husband, but nothing goes as planned and what awaits may very well destroy her. So the book has elements of um, romance, um, kind of a domestic thriller as well, some travelogue in there. It's an interesting blend of different sort of elements within the story. Um, Lainey Cameron, who is an award-winning author and host of the Best of Women's Fiction podcast, says that Harrow has created a vivid, detailed, realistic, and compelling universe, recommended as a novel for book club discussion with fascinating questions posed by each of Abby's decisions. And I think Tabby, uh, Tammy has been speaking to a lot of book clubs and doing some touring with this. Um, when we caught up with her to do this interview, she actually was in I believe Greece, <laughs> recording wow. from a, a cave that she Jealous. was staying in. I think she said a cave house. <laughs> cave yeah, house. so yeah, she said she traveled a lot. Yeah, so what we're gonna yeah. do? We're gonna have a little. We're gonna have a little reading here, and then a quick word. And you can come back, and you had a couple of questions you asked her that uh, she's gonna answer as well. So let's hear her uh, reading, uh, and we'll be back in just a moment. I'm going to read you a scene, and in it, Abby, the main character, has traveled to southern Italy to La Trattoria, a restaurant and guest house and also the home of her departed grandmother's best friend, Francesca. Francesca's grandson is trying to play Cupid between Abby and his cousin, Daniel. And even though Abby's life is a complete disaster, she finds herself intrigued and attracted to cousin Daniel. So here we go. With the evening ending and my face sore from smiling, I slip out. Walking across the tiny stone bridge to my room, I see him standing alone beside the cliff. He's staring out at the sea. His face and eyes illuminated by the moon. He's relaxed and unguarded, apparently deep in thought. The lines around his eyes are softer, making him seem vulnerable somehow. His face is beautiful and sad, and I'm perplexed at being drawn to a man who's never spoken a word to me. It's obvious I'm drunk. I try to sneak by, but the grounds are empty and the night is silent enough to make my footsteps audible. He turns around, startling me. The clunky antique room key slips from my hand and makes a loud ping against the sidewalk. Daniel swipes at his eyes. Uh, me dispiace, I mutter with a wave. Um, uh, me camera, 
I point to my room beyond him, sidestepping across the path like an imbecile. Bueno note, ciao, I squeak out while opening the gate, embarrassed to have caught him having a personal moment. He steps closer and talks to me for the first time. I speak English, he says, without even a trace of an Italian accent. Confusion and hurt springs to the surface. Why didn't you say anything when we met? And then it hits me. You pretended not to speak English because you didn't want to talk to me. The thought is sobering. He flashes a sad smile. No, it's not that. He brushes his hands through his hair. It's just my family and those people in there, he points. They're so loud. No one appreciates silence anymore, you know? He turns back toward the water. Still feeling embarrassed, I say goodnight and continue down the path to my room. Hey, wait, Abby, right? His voice is closer. I'm sorry. I should have said something earlier. I can be an asshole sometimes. It's okay. Have a good night. I close the gate to my patio, glancing over at the restaurant, which is still aglow. Cleanup clatter and voices drift from the kitchen in the rear. Out front, departing guests have begun gathering in the lawn, their voices and laughter carrying. He puts his hands in his rear jeans pocket. Listen, you probably won't be getting much sleep until everyone's out of here. So if you want to hang out and talk, I'm, I'm good with that. His American accent tempts me. I wouldn't have to strain to listen or apologize for my poor Italian, but I shouldn't. I had a great time, but I didn't understand a word of anything. It was fun, though. But I had so much limoncello, I'll probably have no trouble falling asleep. As if on cue, Stefano's loud laughter echoes through the yard. He stumbles by the garden, flanked by two women wobbling in extraordinarily high heels. I can't tell who's helping whom. With their faces upturned toward the full moon, Stefano and the woman take turns howling. Daniel snorts and turns to me. Ah, shit for brains. I think my uncle dropped him on his head when he was a baby. You still sure about that sleep? Drunken laughter echoes. No, I guess I'm not so sure. He turns to walk away. I'll go tell them to knock it off. No, wait, it's okay. He's just having a good time. And it's been a while since I've seen anyone having that much fun. He's a good guy and he means well, but he's like an aged out frat boy. I can see that. Stefano howls again. Daniel looks over my shoulder, then points to the sky. Moon's full tonight, so he's an even bigger pain in the ass. Oh, what the hell. I open the gate and invite him on the porch to sit. The moon is magical, especially over the sea. It casts a soft glow over the stacked houses, accentuating the beauty while hiding the flaws. Moonrise is so underappreciated. Sunrises and sunsets get all the glory, while the moon does the same amount of work without praise. Beams of moonlight shine down on the beach, dividing the sea in two before fading into the horizon. Mesmerized, I search for words when he breaks the silence. So, Abby, why are you here? If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out, and in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. So, Sarah, you, I understand you really enjoyed reading this book? Yeah, yeah, it was a great mix of things and also great for just, you know, feeling like I'm traveling the world <laughs> while I'm not. <laughs> exactly. um, it's a very compelling story, though. Um, and it had some really interesting themes in it, which is one of the things that I wanted to ask her about, because it gets, um, for a book that is sort of branded as romance, it gets pretty dark in terms of some of the themes that it deals with, in terms of 
uh, mental health and abuse. Um, so that was one of the things that I asked Tammy about was how did you decide to include these sorts of themes in your story and what was your approach to navigating writing about sensitive topics? So years ago, anxiety and depression weren't really much of a thing, even though so many people suffer from both. So many in our society have undiagnosed and untreated mental health issues, and they end up masking their problems with drugs and alcohol and end up with ultimately addiction issues. As far as the abuse goes, it's not something that's often discussed in certain levels of society, if you know what I mean. You don't hear about abusive relationships amongst the elite, um, not unless it ends up on dateline or 48 hours. And oftentimes um, in that kind of relationship, there's a power role there of wealthy white collar husband, a stay at home mom who feels undeserving, um, whether or not that comes from the husband that makes her feel that way. Um, so I guess as far as both topics go, I wanted to bring the issues to light because they're real and they happen. And I've had several people come to me during uh, book clubs recently to tell me that they recognize themselves in Abby, the main character. They've been in relationships with men like Alex and could relate to her reluctance to just walk away. Yeah, I think it's really powerful that she's willing to go there with those darker issues and themes and not shy away from, you know, the darker elements of relationships in a story that is about relationships. So I really appreciated that part of it. Um, and we had one other question that I got to talk to Tammy about. Um, as I mentioned, I loved the sort of vicarious traveling element of this novel. So I asked her as an accomplished traveler herself if she could talk about how putting her characters in different settings allowed her to explore different sides of them. Oh, I love to incorporate travel in my writings. I've been away home from home now for almost a month. Um, I started out on my book tour, and right now I'm in a cave house on Santorini in Greece. Um, I just absolutely love what traveling, especially solo, can do for you. I think taking a submissive, untraveled housewife, for lack of a better word, and putting her in a magical setting like Positano is just a spectacular way to set her off on a path to change her life. Solo travel is, is just truly transformative. If you've um, read my blog, you know I'm a big advocate for it. And uh, Daniel is a seasoned traveler. He's a travel photographer, but he sort of takes it all for granted as one would with a job like that. And then um, he meets Abby and visits some of the same places that he's been, but seeing them through her eyes really just does it for him. It's kind of like watching your four-year-old take in the world. Yeah, I mean, watching uh, Tammy's uh, social media in the last month or two has been exhausting. She's <laughs> she's all over the place, and uh, yeah, she gets out know, there. She's done, she's done a great job with that. It's uh, interesting how you know she talks about solo travel, how that uh, can be just as exciting. Uh, of course, you get to make all the decisions if you're the solo traveler, right? I want to know what a cave house looks like. Like, is that like I know. <laughs> a rock home or like... hopefully that can be the, the sequel yeah. we set there. The house. <laughs> All right. Uh, quick word here. And then we're going to jump into act two. Where we're going to dive into some uh, writing topics. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeaterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. 
One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, we're back here and uh, we're in act two now. And uh, this is uh, our creative part of the show where we talk about a writing topic. Uh, and the writing topic uh, this time, we're going to start out with uh, Charlotte Litt's uh, two-minute tips, uh, how math can make you a better writer. I'm really <laughs> curious about how this is going to work since I, since I wasn't very good uh, in math uh, myself. But uh, it's, uh, it'll be interesting. Why don't we just listen to Paul Reale and uh, hear what he has to say about this. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, with a two-minute writing tip. Writers don't generally think about math when writing, unless, of course, you're writing about math. But there's a bit of math, if you embrace it, that will actually make you a better writer. First, a little background. One sure way to become a better writer is to write a lot. You'll often hear that you must write every day. I won't go that far, but I will say you should strive to write daily, to make writing as much of a habit as brushing your teeth. The more you write, the more you'll want to write. The easier it will be, the better a writer you'll become. Now, here's where the math comes in. You don't have to write that many words a day or for that many minutes a day to make enormous progress on your work. Can you set aside just 30 minutes a day? For most prose writers, 30 minutes equals about 250 words. One double-spaced page. That sounds like not much writing, I know, but here's the math. 250 words per day, six days per week, is 78,000 words in a year. That's an entire first draft of a novel or memoir in one year. Or that's perhaps 10 short stories or 20 personal essays in one year. For poets, word count is not a relevant measure, but ask yourself, how many completed poems could you write in a year? if you spent 156 hours with pencil in hand. That's what you'd get with just 30 minutes per day, six days per week. Now, here's your two-part action step. First, decide how many minutes per day you plan to write. It helps to also select what projects you're going to be working on, as that helps with your motivation. Second, determine what time of day you'll write and what you'll stop or cut back on to fit your writing in. This is easier than you think. Couldn't you give up 30 minutes of television, Twitter doom scrolling, Candy Crush? On your deathbed, will you wish you had spent more time on Facebook? That's the math. 30 minutes a day, or however many minutes you choose, and you'll produce far more writing than nearly anyone out there, including your prior self. Find this tip and more at charlottelit.org tips. Yeah, and here we are um, talking about Apple TV early in the show to get draw people away from <laughs> from their it's writing okay. and all that kind of thing. So, what do you think? Are y'all math majors? You got the point here. Yeah. I think that math was simple enough yeah. that even I could could deal with it. That worked for me. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of uh, I don't know if you guys have read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, but um, it's so have, good. Yeah. And she has a point or like a part in one of the chapters that says you have like what is it two hours of really productive time each day where you're just like super focused on something and who is getting those two hours. Um, and I guess that sort of ties into that, what he's saying, just kind of like what, 
what can you do? How can you alter your schedule to put more effort and time and focus into your writing? You know, just like who's getting that time of yours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like his idea about sort of planning it out, like actually at- yeah. asking yourself, you know, how am I going to find this time? If it means that I have to give something up, what is that going to be? As opposed to just, I think if you just say like, oh, I'll spend 30 minutes a day, six days a week, like that's very doable. But it can be easy to still lose that time. But if you think of it in terms of how do I actually spend my time now and how is that going to change in a real way, I think you're more likely to actually make that change. Yeah, it's making me think uh, I need to write every day. But (laughs) I I don't know. You still got a lot done. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I I just I try to write more and different. But let's 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 hear what the audience says and think about this. I I think they like it. I think they like the idea. Yeah. All right. How about that swoosh? What do you think? Coming in from outer space for the rest of the episode. We're we're transitioning here from from math to something different. Astronomy. Yeah. um, (laughs) There you go. Um, So the next piece of this uh, creative part of our discussion in Act Two today, we are. talking uh with jennifer ruff i had a very long interview with her and i you know it's i I warn you in advance but if you're if you want to know a lot of tips about indie publishing um and how how to do it uh, jennifer's got a lot of great uh, tips she's a usa today best-selling author um we talked about how she navigates the world of indie publishing how she does it so well um she offers plenty of tips and recommendations for how to publish independently and if you know, you want to make money doing it. She talks about how to do that as well. Uh, we also feature a novel, The Groom Went Missing, in this interview. It's a mystery thriller that is part of the Agent Victoria Heslin series. Um, you know, the reason this interview is long um, is because I just kept asking question after question after question regarding uh, indie publishing. And, you know, there, because there's so many questions out there that relate to this, not just the putting together of of you know, the manuscript into a, a book and what platforms you put it on and how you get it there, and but also the marketing phase of it and where you spend your money and how you do it. So she had a lot of uh, uh, information to offer. And it's interesting, she grew up um, in Massachusetts as a biology degree uh, from college and a master's in public health and epidemiology from Yale University, and yet she discovered a love of writing and she's making good money, uh, even though for much of her career, she was in management consulting for PricewaterhouseCoopers and IBM Business Consulting. So, you know, you can write thrillers even though you were an accountant <laughs> or you worked in consulting or something like that. So uh, she lives in Charlotte. Uh, she has a pack of greyhounds that she loves, <laughs> as does uh, Victoria Heslin, who uh, is, you know, the book that uh, we feature on the show, which I enjoyed reading. Um, so what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to drop that in. Of course, I, I Tell everybody, and you know, I'm trying to remind everybody, these are longer episodes, but we're putting timestamps in for where we have different uh, features. We have authors that are featured. We have the, the writing talks that are featured um, so that you can scroll through and you can find what you need. And you can come back and listen in segments, or if you're traveling, you might bite off the whole thing at one time. But uh, I got a lot out of this interview, and I hope you will too. So we'll, we'll play it now. So, Jennifer, uh, it's great to have you back on the Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me. 
Yeah, and it's uh, guys. It's been a while. You were on. You were on. You were with us very early on in the process. It's been about three or four years since I've been podcasting now, and uh, you were you were one of the first. So it's it's great to be back. And you've written probably what ten books in the meantime. <laughs> probably four, four or five since I was on the podcast. That's great. And we're going to talk about that. In fact, uh, we're going to talk about your one of your recent books that I listened to, uh, The Greenlit Missing, which I really enjoyed. But uh, before that, we're going to dive in uh, and talk about uh, indie publishing because you're good at it. And I know listeners who are in that world will benefit from what you have to say. But let's just start off with sort of a basic. Um, why did you choose to go be an indie publisher? Sure. I didn't start out that way. I started out with a small publisher, published my first two books with a small publisher where I didn't have to do anything, it didn't cost me anything, which was great at the time because I didn't know anything about publishing or marketing. So that was perfect for me and I learned a lot when I was with them. But as I was learning, I started realizing that I wanted to do more. I wanted to have more control in fact, I wanted to build a small business empire. And there's no way you can do that without being in charge, having total control. So there were two great things that the publisher did for me is when I signed a contract with them, they required me to have a website and also to pick one social media platform and be active on it. And at the time, I think I was the last known person standing that wasn't on social media at all and had no intention of doing it. So having that push, it wasn't my choice. Having that push was great for me. I chose Facebook and created a personal page and author page. And to this day, I rely on Facebook so much for um, running ads, marketing, and also for the support I get from other authors in the independent community. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned, you know, picking one. I think that's good advice because you can get overwhelmed with uh, yes. with social media and it can take away from things. But uh, so um, how many books do you publish a year? So I publish two books a year. I'm trying to get to three. And I probably write three a year and manage to publish two a year. Um, and my 14th book comes out in October. My 15th almost finished. So I'm meeting my goals. That's awesome. And how many different series do you have? I have three series. One I've been writing in much more than the others. The ideas for that one are just coming to me. <laughs> but um, my plan originally was to produce one book in each series and you know, then go back and start again. Because each time a new book comes out in the series, it breathes new life into the entire series, which is fantastic. So it's definitely in your best interest to keep writing them and, and breathing life into your backlist. But um, easier said than done. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I was going to say, because having just gone through the process <laughs> of publishing my first full-length novel, I'd done three novellas, and, uh, but you know, having the full-length novel and spending all the time and the research and then the advance. and Of course, I'm still learning a lot. I mean, you've got a lot of this stuff down, and we're going to talk about some of the things you do, this sort of part of your system. But but still, to write that many books a year, a um, little bit about your process maybe so we can uh, figure out how you do that. Sure. 
Well, everybody is so different. I mean, remember you said you're a binge writer. I'm completely the opposite of that. Um, so the ideas come very easily to me. I have a crazy wild imagination. The ideas are always there. And my challenge is always to execute those ideas into a well-written novel that's engaging, that someone doesn't want to put down. So um, I always have a book in process. Like when I finish one, I've already have the ideas for the next one fleshed out so that I never have a, a space where there's nothing going on. So I flesh out the ideas. And since I write mystery thriller, thrillers, I'm really focused on the plot, on what is the mystery, where are the twists, um, where are the different points where my main characters discover things, where are the red herrings. So I'm very focused on that outline. And I kind of work it out from beginning to end. And then I have to go back. And this is the hard part for me, is just revising, rewriting. It's constant, 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 constant. Um, adding details, adding to the character development, and really making the book come alive. So the idea plot part is probably the, the easiest part, and then just the constant rewriting and revising. And I'm lucky enough that um, my process for that is I have a critique group, and we only submit 5,000 words a month, so they never even get through half a novel, but still, it's very helpful to have feedback. And then I have beta readers, and I have an ARC team. So all of these people are giving me feedback, um, and I'm making minor revisions before the book is published. Right, and just we'll throw out the terminology, ARC team means the advanced reader copy team, right? Yes. So um, do you use any tools for plotting or outlining, or you just uh, scratch it out uh, in Word or some other format? Yeah, I just scratch it out in Word. And I don't know how anyone can write without a computer because, I mean, all of my stuff is cut and pasted here and there. I mean, it's just the revising is, is nonstop. So I definitely use a computer, but no tools, not just, um, just Microsoft Word. Now, I know that when you were traditionally published, you would have gone through an editor with your publisher. Do you have an editor that you work with, or do you have you identified all the people that take a look at it? Um, but half of my novels have been edited, and the more my books sell, the more interested I became in having an editor. Like, I want these books to be as good as I can possibly make them. So I made a big mistake about a year or two ago in being very generous with telling people who my editor was. And now I can't get that editor. <laughs> so in fact, I needed her now and she is, she's got two manuscripts ahead of me, both people that I recommended. So that was a mistake. I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> Don't ask me who my editor is. From my very first book where the editor had a lot of work to do, that work has lessened for sure. I, I'm getting the hang of this. So she's focused more on the story and she can help me strengthen the story maybe. There's a lot of tiny things she finds, but the need for editor seems to be less the more I go. So that, that's a good thing. All right, now you talked about running a small you know, empire and everything and you mentioned backlist. And as I understand it for 
an indie author to start making money, it's really about getting more books in your backlist that you can start doing things with in terms of promotion to start selling those books. Am I right about that? I think so. I think for the most part, but I have a few books that way outsell my others and I have a few friends who are, you know, making millions of dollars on just a few books that they just nailed it. They got everything right and they're paying a lot of money to advertise them. So I think it depends, but a backlist never hurts. Each time you write a new book, you find new readers and if they love what they're reading, they go back and read the others. So it's kind of a constant funnel of bringing people in with new work and having them discover your old work. Well, let's talk about, um, you know, as part of having an empire, you've got people that work with you. Uh, do you format your own books or do you um, sub that out as well? I format my own books. I try and do everything I possibly can myself so that I'm not waiting and I'm just not dependent on anyone else. That, that's my goal. It's not always possible. I certainly don't make my own covers. That would be a disaster. So you've got, you've got cost in an editor when you can get her mm-hmm. or him, mm-hmm. and you've got uh, cost uh, uh, in your cover. Uh, you've learned to format. Do you use a particular formatting tool? Nope. I format right in Microsoft Word. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to export it somehow to get it in uh, EPUB or whatever. Oh, I use, um, I use draft to digital to do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the person I work with who formats for me uses something called Vellum, mm-hmm. which I've heard mm-hmm. some people use as well. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that, that's, that's great news about the way you do this, although I think trying to replicate two or three books a year would be a, <laughs> a real challenge. Um, but you seem like you got it down. Let's talk about platforms and marketing because I think indie publishers are always trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way to go. And you and I actually had some conversations when I was launching my recent novel on the, on the ebook side about pre-orders and pricing and mm-hmm. when to do X and when to do Y and that kind of thing. So talk about the platforms that you publish on and why you chose what you chose. Um, I am exclusive to Amazon for my ebooks. That's so that I can be in Kindle Unlimited. And that has been great for me. I think it's a wonderful way for maybe an unknown author to find new readers. You're not competing with the huge editors. You're not, you know, James Patterson is not in Kindle Unlimited. So um, maybe it makes it a little easier. But that is the majority of my, probably 50% of my income comes from Kindle Unlimited. So I only have my eBooks through Amazon. And I'm really happy with that. Everything else, I'm wide, so you can buy my print and hardback books um, on Amazon, but you can go into any bookstore and order them, Walmart, Target. You can order them anywhere, and those stores will order them through IngramSpark. And for audiobooks, um, I'm on Amazon, but I also distribute them through Findaway, so they're available through every single audiobook distributor out there. Yeah, well, I think I'm doing some things right then because I try to, you know, follow your standards here. So I'm on, I, I, my audio books are uh, on uh, Find a Way and they're they're not exclusive to Audible so they can be wider mm-hmm. there. And then mm-hmm. the uh, the trade paperback is uh, 
with Ingram Spark and therefore can get in bookstores and that kind of thing. And uh, the ebooks I did try, I'm trying this time with the latest, although my first three novellas are, are wide. The, this one, Deadly Declarations, has been Kindle Unlimited, as you suggested. And I guess let's talk about that a minute because there are some things that you can do with that platform. Like uh, during the first 90 days, I was able to run a free promotion of the book for about a week and picked up, I don't know, 75 or 80 reviews, you know, that way. And uh, there, and I guess there's this page read thing, and I'm not sure that's getting better or worse. What are your thoughts on the whole page read and the promotion? So the page read, that's Kindle Unlimited. That's, right. that's millions of people paying a set amount every month, maybe $10, $12 a month, and they can read as many pages as they want of books in Kindle Unlimited. And so that's fantastic. I mean, when you're getting to millions of page reads a month, that's a lot of readers and that's a lot of income coming in. So I'm all for that. I think, I think it's wonderful. And when you do a BookBub promotion, say, and you have 30 or 40,000 downloads, those page reads go up. We don't know why it happens, but it is a guaranteed. They go up for about two weeks and that's just so many more people reading your book. So, so doing those free promotions, um, I, I try and keep those on like the first in my series because I want as many people to discover those and I won't do those per se on the, the newer books because I want people to pay, <laughs> feel good about those, um, you know, for, for a year or two. But those free promotions are wonderful. And I say yes to everything Amazon offers me. So Kindle Daily Deals, Prime Reading, I, I say yes to all of those. It's all just wonderful exposure and opportunity to find new readers. Yeah, I, th I think it is about trying to find you know, new readers. And um, I, I think I've told you in the past that I've been trying to get into BookBub. Let's go ahead and talk about this now because you brought it up for like four years with my novellas. But um it didn't, it never happened, but I did, I got in, you know, with Deadly Declarations. And I think it was probably because by the time I submitted to them, I'd already had three trade reviews um, with Kirkus and a couple of others, Book Life and I think the Midwest Book Review. And then I also had about 200 reviews online by the time I submitted. And that was only like three months in to the release. And so they said yes. And uh, that was great. And what happened was, I mean, it's kind of amazing to me, but, um, and you've probably had this experience, but that thing ran in uh, June, and it's only the middle of July now, and it, I've already had more than 300 reviews That's as a result of that. Now, it was a free book, Bob, right? I ran it free, mm -hmm. but... Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a lot of readers that are reading your book and they're and they're commenting on your book, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what you want, it's right? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Nothing compares to BookBub. Um, they are still far and away the leader in getting your book out to as many people as possible who really will read it. So they're awesome. And, and as, awesome. A, as a, I see that you've got BookBubs coming along at different times, how often do they take an author and what's the secret to getting in? <laughs> I don't know. Um I, I've been really lucky. I've, I've run every book on BookBub that I've wanted to, and some of them I've done two or three times. I don't know, honestly, uh, because I know 
I have author friends who have very good quality books with lots of reviews who just keep getting turned down. And every once in a while I'll see a book with like 10 reviews and I think, what on earth, how did they get one? So I really don't know. I think it's your best chance is to have good reviews, to have a quality cover, a good blurb, um, because they just want to make sure that they are maintaining the quality of the books they offer people. I think that's their most important criteria, that they're putting out something that people are really going to like. So if you're focused on that, I guess you have a better chance. Yeah, and just for, for indie publishers that are listening, um, you know, I started messing around with BookBub about a year ago. You need to go on and you know, set up your profile, put your books on there. Um, I think I had one follower. Now I've got about 200 because I've got the BookBub and people follow you after that. So get on there and uh, and just start trying because, and this, just to be clear, this is for your ebook. So um, it's, they'll price your ebook at a reduced price or they'll put it up for free. And then amazingly, it just goes out to all these people. Yeah, and we should be clear that these aren't cheap either. <laughs> They're expensive. They're you know, $600 to $1,000 to give your book away for free, but there's no better way to, to get it out there to readers. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And while we're talking about promotions, um, let's talk about audiobooks real quick and about uh, Chirp because you do audiobooks. And it sounds like, do you produce your audiobooks on, AC, on the ACX platform? Is that how you met your narrators? Uh, my first few audiobooks, I did a royalty share years ago, and I regret that so much. That is just a terrible mistake, because then you don't own those, you can't do whatever you want with them. You have to buy out your narrator in order to kind of either redo the audio or, or just have opportunities to do what you want with it. So I don't recommend that to anyone. Pay. And just, pay. To, be, just to be clear, so folks, you can go on and produce an audiobook on the ASEX platform, connect with a narrator, and you can either pay them a per finished hour rate, uh, or you can do a royalty share, but as Jennifer says, then you're tied up. For, people do it sometimes, they think, well, then I don't have to pay them anything, and yet you're giving up that control that she cherishes. Yeah, yeah, so the royalty share costs you nothing, and you and the narrator split the profits. Um, like, maybe they get 30%, you get 40%. But I think that if you're, you know, going forward and you're going to be writing more books, producing more audiobooks, don't do that. You'll regret it. So I now um, work with, my last few books were with a company I really like, and they produced the audiobook and put it right on ACX for me. And then I download those files and I put them on Findaway. All right, I noticed that in The, the Groom Went Missing, you used two narrators, <laughs> which obviously increases the cost of the, of the book, right? Yes. And is this the first time you've done that? Um, this was my, might just be my second, my second with two narrators, yes. Okay. And are you pleased with that? I mean, I found it to be engaging to have, you know, two, two voices. Yeah. Um, my, one of my first audiobooks, I had a, a male narrator, and he did such a great job. And it's one of my best-selling audiobooks. He did such a great job with the narration and the male voices. And then the female voices, they all sound just awful to me. <laughs> and, you know, there's just not much you can do when you have like a, a baritone voice and you're doing female characters. And so then I decided that women narrators, they, female narrators 
can do male voices better than males can do females. So my next few were with a woman, and then I decided that, um, hey, you can do both. <laughs> so I'm real happy with these people, and they put in sound effects that I think are really neat. So they're going to do, um, they're doing my next book in two weeks. They're going to start on my next book. So is this, uh, does this fall into your rule of don't give away the name of the company, or are they big enough that uh, you can share oh, that? Gosh. <laughs> I have to. Um, well, I mean, I don't know. Do they do? I mean, do they work for a lot of different authors? Yeah, yeah. It's called Silverton Audio, and so they, you know, once you choose them, you still have to audition narrators. So you're not, you know, it's not like there's just two people. <laughs> but um, they've been they've been great. Now I know. So for my audiobooks, um, I negotiated a like a $200 per finished hour rate or something for one narrator to do the book. And of course you can do the math if it takes 10 hours for the audio book. And then you've got, you know, some, uh, if you hire somebody to help you with that, you can sort of figure out the math of that. Mm -hmm. uh, is that how you negotiate with them? Is it a per finished hour rate that you yeah, pay? Yeah, it's always a per finished hour. And my books come in about seven or eight hours. So it's pretty, pretty much been the same all along. Do you pay that to each narrator, or do you just pay it to the company and pay they it. negotiate with the narrator? I just pay it to the company. Okay. Well, one thing you told me, which I found was interesting, is when I worked with my narrator, which I found on the first books with ACX, but then we decided just to do it directly, and we put it up on Findaway, and I put it up on Audible separately. You know, I just went directly uh, to him, and I, I did a lot of things for him. I did character sketches. I provided information about the characters. One thing you said you did, which I found interesting, was that you went and sort of edited the manuscript to take out the he says and the she says. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that when, when someone's reading, those dialogue tags can be important. But when you have dual narrators, you don't need a male to read something and then say he said, and then the female to read and say she said. So, so I go through, I take out a lot of those, and then I also flag any spots where, you know, he snorted, he laughed, he huffed. And I kind of flag those for the narrator and I say, do this. You know, don't say he huffed, just huff. <laughs> um, and they've been great about that. So, um, and they also give me, um, they kind of go through pronunciations with me. And before they record the whole thing, they give me a sample of each of my main characters to make sure it's not you know, way off of how I envisioned it. But that's about it. They take care of the rest. All right. Well, let's, I want to work into an area because we've talked about, um, you know, the decision to be an indie uh, publisher and the fact that uh, you got to sort of, you get the control, but you also pick up the responsibility as well because you're having to you know, get your uh, book cover. You've got to get people to list, to read your book and that kind of thing. Um, do you have, uh, let's talk about launches and that kind of thing, because um, I did a lot of planning ahead, and I'm sure you do too with your launches, because you probably put them up for pre-order. And then, uh, so can you talk us through sort of your launch process and any tips you can give to people about uh, that process? Sure. Um, well, I'm always trying new things, always. So every launch I've either because things are changing or I find out about something new and I try and eliminate the things that don't work. But most important thing, I guess, is my timeline. 
knowing that um, when I finish my book, when I'm finished, there's still many, many more months. And it doesn't have to be this way. Some people finish a book and boom, it's up, you know, a week later. But I put it up for pre-order when I'm almost finished, where I'm sure I'm going to finish. I'll put it up for pre-order and I'll give myself maybe five, six months. So during that time, I have um, beta readers and author friends reading it. And I'm not paying these people. So, you know, if they find something, they send it to me. If they don't, they don't. It's, there's no guarantee that they're not working for me. But I can count on everyone to maybe find one or two things that bug them or uh, just didn't seem right. And so I'm fixing those little things. And meanwhile, I'm revising my blurb and um, just thinking about all of the marketing things that I'm going to do. And most important for me, because I'm writing in series, is that when a book comes out, I've got the next two chapters of that book that comes after. I've got those in the book that's coming out. So when you get to the end of The Groom Went Missing, you can read the first two chapters of Vanish on Vacation and you can pre-order it. So that's my most important goal is that my next book is on pre-order by the time I publish um, the one before it. it. That presumes you're going to get the next book finished in five to six months after the other one comes out, right? Yeah, well, that's why I don't don't put it on pre-order until I'm positive I can finish it. Like there's no way it's going to get scrapped. I'm so close to the end. It's coming out. All right, let's talk about pre-order a second because um, you can set up a pre-order on uh, Amazon with uh, an ebook, but not a print book, right? And then you you do the print book uh, pre-order through Ingram Spark. Is that right? I don't actually do a print book pre-order. I've never done those. I just haven't yet. Well, I did. I did it through Ingram, and it gets it shows up on mm-hmm. the bookshop mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So, and then someone will pick it up. But uh, but you primarily do your ebook pre-orders. Is that what you're mm-hmm. talking about? Yes. And we had some conversation about how to price that pre-order. Do you discount it? Do you keep it the price you're going to price the book? Um, when I started out, I discounted it heavily. The idea was to. Um, get the ranking up as high as possible on Amazon. And for, for a long time, that was kind of the, the best thinking is that you want to sell as many as you can early so your ranking goes up and then people just find it organically. But I realized that was killing me um, because my pre-orders are the people I can count on to buy the book. They're my most loyal followers. They're going to buy the book no matter what it costs. So having my pre-order discounted was not a good idea. So my last four books, my ebooks are priced at $5.99, which is certainly much less than traditional ebooks, but maybe high on the indie side. And so I've I've kept it that my pre-order goes up at $5.99 and it doesn't come down unless I have a very special sale, like a one-day sale. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, I think that What's interesting to me is that you're putting this thing up. When you said you're almost, when you're almost done, you put it up, but then you're sending it out to beta readers, which means you're not really done. Have you been to your editor yet by the time you put it up for pre-order? No, no. When I put it up for pre-order, I just know that I'm going to finish this book. Like, so it still might need dozens of revisions, but I know that like, I'm not going to suddenly change the plot or, or 
redo the whole story and need another six months. Like I'm so confident that this is the book I'm going to present to the world and now it's just a matter of smoothing it out, polishing it. That's when I feel confident. Where some people put a book up on pre-order and all they have is the concept. They have nothing but a title they haven't even written yet. And I'm, I'm not that confident yet. <laughs> I've got to be, know that the book is pretty much done and just the, the editing needs to happen. Yeah, and it's great advice to be able to put your next two chapters in there. But, but folks, you got to at least have that next book <laughs> moving yeah. along before, yeah. before you do it. You can always go back and amend the back of your book, too, to add those chapters later if you don't get that book. Absolutely. You can, when you're independently published, you can change anything. But you do have to hit your pre-order or Amazon will take away those privileges. You will not be able to do a pre-order for, um, you know, a few years if you don't have something come out when the pre-order date hits. I think one of the most, you know, one important thing you've said here today is, you know, plan that launch out. Don't just finish your book and put it up because you've got to sort of start building a little bit of interest in it. You, do you, let's talk about the other things that you do in terms of uh, marketing to get the word out. Do you, I mean, you mentioned the website. Do you have a newsletter that you send out to your listeners? I have a newsletter. Um, it got really big and expensive, <laughs> and I don't like doing a newsletter. It's just not my personality. I do not enjoy it. It was really stressful for me to come up with stuff um, every month, so I actually only turn my newsletter on like a month before my release, and then I'll send out a few emails saying, hey, this is coming, and here it is, and then thank you so much for reading. So maybe twice a year you get emails from me. And that's the only time I, I use my newsletter now. I Most of my marketing is through Facebook. I run Facebook ads every single day. I redo them maybe every Thursday, but I always have ads running and that's been about two years. And I have Amazon ads running. I don't spend anywhere near as much as I do on Facebook, but I'm kind of afraid not to do those. I don't know that they work that great for me, but I'm afraid not to do them. So big budget on Facebook, tiny budget on Amazon, and then I supplement that with BookBub promotions maybe two or three times a year. And then I don't say no to anything. So, you know, last week I did someone's blog. Um, anytime I have an opportunity to do a blog or a podcast, I say yes because you just never know. Um you know, who you're going to meet and, and what good right. might come of that. Yeah. And all the people Anything. are going to listen to this and say, thank you, thank you, Jennifer, for all this great information. I'm going to go read uh, <laughs> The Groom Went Missing. Yeah. I really, really like the marketing publishing side. I just love to learn. And there's so much to learn with indie publishing. It's just, it's not never ending. And I enjoy it so much. So um, I really, I love talking about it. Do, do you have, you mentioned Facebook ads and doing them, you know, religiously, um, I've heard this from some indie authors that are successful. Um, you're probably spending a lot of money, but you're making it back. Is that the idea? Yes. So like with any advertising, if, if you have a restaurant, maybe you're putting up billboards, you don't know for sure how many people see the billboard and come in because of it that day or a month later. So it's a little risky because it's expensive and, and you can't, directly attribute your ads to your sales necessarily, but definitely if I don't advertise, 
my sales go down. You you need to somehow let people know your your book is out there, whether it be in person events or book signings. It just I prefer staying in my house, <laughs> not going out. So Facebook works really well for me. So to tell our listeners, um, and I'm curious too, how do you learn more about Facebook and Amazon advertising? Um, there are so many courses that you can take specifically for authors. Um, lots of great courses out there. And in fact, if, if I could redo anything, I wish I had taken some of these courses like from day one. Um, Mark Dawson, he has some excellent courses. He has an ads for author course that costs about $750, but it's updated constantly. Every year you get the updates. That's a really good one. That teaches you everything you need to know about Facebook, Amazon, BookBub, maybe TikTok, a few other things. Um, that's a really good course. Um, Brian Cohen has some really good courses. Um, Mal Cooper has some really good courses. Then there are so many Facebook groups that an author can join to ask questions and get help. And so many of those questions are, are people having glitches with ads or even just trying to figure out how to get started. So um, a few that I really like are one called Wide for the Win. That is excellent. It's got people making a million dollars and it's got people just trying to finish their first book asking questions. Um, there's one called the SPF formula, stands for self-publishing formula, and that was one of Mark Dawson's Facebook pages. And there's one called 20 Books to 50K, the premise being that write 20 books and you can start making $50,000 a year, which you don't have to write 20 books to get there if you do things right. But um, those are just full of traditional and indie authors sharing their successes, sharing encouragement, asking questions. Those are great. And you, you're kind of aware that you're not in this alone. Like, you know, one day Facebook ads platform was totally acting screwy and I just panicked. I thought it was my ads and I went right to one of these groups and there's like a hundred people right away saying, what's going on with Facebook ads? And so right away you feel like, oh, it's okay. It's gonna be okay. It's not just me. There's a lot of support out there. Yeah, that's really helpful. Now, one of the things you haven't mentioned, Jennifer, is uh, bookstores and libraries. Uh, do, do you spend much time trying to get your book into bookstores and libraries? None. None at all. None at all. I don't even have a print copy of my own books. Um, it's just not something I've focused on. I've felt kind of from the beginning that print and hardback, those are owned by traditional publishers, that they've they kind of own, own that, that market and I can't compete with them. So print books make up about 10% of my sales, which is still a nice number. And there's plenty of people who only, only buy books, print books. So it's, it's great to have them, but I have not tried to get into bookstores. Um, I see my books in libraries. I can see libraries buying them. And my audiobooks are available through almost every library, through like Hoopla or Overdrive or something. But it's not, it's just not something I've focused on. It's, it's a totally different avenue that I haven't 
spent much time on. But you're, but you're going to the steps of setting your book up in print on Ingram Spark and also on the online platform so that it's there for people that want to order the print copy, right? Absolutely, yes. And I sell, yes, I sell hundreds of print books a month, but I'm not focused on it. I'm not trying to. All right. A couple of um, things I, I just want to, you, you threw out some terms like pro writer and book brush and book funnel. Can you just touch on those? And then we're going to talk about the Greenwood missing. Sure. Those are some of the tools I'm currently using. I use ProWriter. Um, Grammarly is similar. It's a, it's a app you pay maybe $100 a year for. And once I'm finished with like my first draft, I run each chapter through ProWriter. And it's like having a, a line editor. It helps tell you where you're missing a comma. Um, you know, make suggestions to just polish your writing a little bit. It's helpful. It's another way of looking at your writing, and, and it, it helps. I did use it, too, on the recent book, and I noticed that it was catching some active-passive issues I had in several places, you know. Yeah. And, but yeah. sometimes it would do it, and you'd say, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, like in dialogue, you know, when it's it, – a lot of times it's suggestions for dialogue you just have to ignore. It's not – you're not writing a business proposal, but it can be helpful. All right, what about Book Brush and, and Book Funnel? Book Brush is a tool that makes ads. Um, so if you're running a lot of Facebook ads or running ads on BookBub that you pay for, you have to have an image. Um, and before Book Brush, I would spend hours and hours <laughs> trying to make a decent-looking graphic to put in my ads. And now I just – I either use my audiobook covers through through – I mean, tens of thousands of dollars of testing. I can tell you my audiobook covers work the best on my Facebook ads. And then the next thing is things that I'll make on BookBrush. And they just make it real easy for you to um, find a graphic, drag your book cover onto it. They even have pre-made images where you just put your book cover onto them. And it, it just helps. It saves a lot of time and it will always give you a professional looking graphic. So I recommend that, and that's only like $100, $150 a year. And what was the other thing? Book funnel. Book funnel. Oh, I use book funnel um, when I send my book out to my advanced review team or to beta readers. It just makes it look a little more professional, and it takes care of um, any issues. Like if, if you don't want people saying, I can't download this, I can't figure this out. If you have even 50 people that can't figure it out, that's a lot of time that you're spending. So BookFunnel does that for you. They help people with the technical issues of getting your book downloaded. This is before you're selling it and you're just trying to, to get it out to your pre-readers. So that's good. It's a simple tool that helps. So when you're, when you're having your uh, pre-readers read it and you're still in the revision mode, have you... Are you just putting it up in a PDF format at that point as opposed to formatting it in a digital format? No, I put it up in BookFunnel. I offer an EPUB. Um, I think that's for people who have like a Nook. I offer a Mobi file so they can send it right to their Kindle and a PDF. So you have three options. But I might reformat those. I do it myself. So, I mean, if, I, if someone sends me two typos, I might reformat it in all three and put new ones up you know, in, in a matter of minutes. You can do that when you can do it yourself. 
Yeah, well, that is a nice feature if you're if you're asking beta readers to read it and give you feedback that they can read it in any format they want. When I was doing that with some um, early readers, it was in a Word format, but then I had advanced readers um, that did it, you know, and I sent them a print book to look at. And some people do it through NetGalley or other places, but I, you know, I found that hard to navigate just personally, but, uh, you know, for me. Hey, listen, we got, I knew this would be, a problem. I'd be talking to you forever about indie publishing and never get to your book. But let's talk about your book. I enjoyed reading. Uh, actually, I listened to it on the audiobook. The, the groom went missing, and I'm curious. Uh, uh, I'll just lay the foundation here. Um, you know, the groom goes missing <laughs> right before right before the wedding, and and he's a doctor, an ER doctor, and nobody can figure out why. And and, and they spend most of their time trying to do that. Uh, where did that inspiration come from, Jennifer? Well, I'm always trying to think of ideas that will catch people's interests and a bride or groom not showing up at the altar that has some universal appeal because it's so terrible. Um, but I did have some real life inspiration. In 2009, a brilliant Yale graduate student mysteriously vanished just days before her Long Island wedding. And it set off this desperate search um, and all this speculation about whether this beautiful young woman was a victim of foul play or had, was she a runaway bride. And that happened just years after I graduated from that same exact school after working in the same medical building from which that woman disappeared. So I was super fascinated by the whole case. I mean, it was so terrible and fascinating and tragic. And there was a surveillance video found of her going into the building and never coming out. And so they ended up finding her murdered in a storage closet in the building. But it took a while, and I think just because of her wedding, there was so much speculation that she had just taken off. She had disappeared. She didn't want to marry her groom-to-be. So I guess that stuck with me, just how fascinated I was, because it happened at my school. I was so familiar with everything involved. And so that must have just kind of popped up in the back of my head at some point. That would be a, a fun story. Yeah, it was fun. And, and you built the suspense over time and you had, um, but you told it from several points of view because when we get to part two, we start, you know, hearing a different point of view um, from the person who's missing, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is an interesting uh, way to do that. Um, you kind of teased us along a little bit and uh then we find out the predicament um do you all do you usually write your books and several points of view yes always and this is probably one of the only books where i didn't have the, the villain's point of view in there really um but that's something i enjoy so much is alternating between the the protagonist and the villain um i enjoy that but i always i always have several different points of view Hey, do you have a little reading picked out that you could share with us? Sure. And you can set it up. Where, where are we in the book? And just tell us who's in the scene. Okay, this is um, 64 pages into the book. And this scene involves my protagonist, an FBI agent, Victoria Heslin. She's the star of seven of my mystery thrillers. Yeah, I liked her, by the way. She's got a lot of dogs, too. She loves animals. Yeah, like me. Um, she has, um, she's with her boyfriend at a wedding 
and her boyfriend is the best man of, of the groom who is missing. So this is, um, he didn't show up at the altar. And that's where this kind of takes off. The bridal party huddled together inside the small chapel as the main church emptied of guests. Victoria could see them through the windows congregating outside. Their wide-eyed expressions conveyed their shock. This was not the wedding they expected to witness, and like her, they would never forget it. Victoria, Ned's whisper drew her to one side of the chapel, away from the others. Can you use your contacts to track Scott's phone and find his location? I can't, not without a warrant, she whispered back, noticing Jules staring at her from across the room. Unless we have evidence to show he's missing and not of his own accord, it's an invasion of privacy for the Supreme Court. But no one has heard from him since those messages last night. I just can't believe he would do this to Bailey. Something happened to him, maybe when he was out looking for a parking spot. Like what? Victoria tried to keep her tone gentle. What do you think happened? I don't know, Ned exhaled loudly. Victoria angled her body so no one could see her face as she tried to plead some sense into him. If Scott was looking for a parking spot, he couldn't have been more than a few blocks from the church. It was still light out, a mostly residential area. The chances of something to happening to him right before his wedding, something that didn't involve a motor vehicle accident or a medical issue, which we've already ruled out, are so very small. Things happened. Victoria knew that all too well carjackings, kidnappings, random disappearances. In this situation, none were likely. No evidence of foul play existed. Besides, he texted Bailey last night to say he got called out of town for an emergency, she reminded him. Again, she couldn't help but wondering what sort of emergency it could be. She felt another surge of anger towards Scott, the groom. He had hurt and betrayed so many people. She had no desire to meet him now. He had those rings on him when he disappeared, Ned said. It's a message that something happened. Yes, the message is that he doesn't want to get married. She rested her hand on Ned's arm. You said he was nervous before the rehearsal. Ned curled his bottom lip in. No, it wasn't like that. Victoria didn't want Ned to feel any worse than he probably already did. It's possible that Scott freaked out at the last minute and is more surprised than anyone about what he's done. Sometimes we don't know what we're going to do until the very moment it happens. People act unpredictably in new high-stress situations. High stress? No, I don't think so. Operating on dying people when you might be their only hope, which is what Scott does for a living, that's stressful. Marrying the woman he loves is not. If you and I were to get, I mean, look, I know you don't know Scott, but you know me. Can you trust that I'm a decent judge of character? especially since it's my best friend's character in question. I may not be a pro father like you, but I know Scott. That's great. Yeah. So I, I was, um, and this leads to a question about research um, and how you get to know what the FBI is thinking, because she was resistant to thinking that uh, there was any foul play here for a while. There could be other circumstances. You got to give them 24 hours, 48 hours before we start you know, knocking down doors and hunting for people and that kind of thing. How did, how have you learned, of course, you've written four or five books now, Victoria Heslin. Uh, what have you done to uh, learn about how the FBI operates? Well, I do a lot of research. Um, I've talked to different FBI agents. 
I have a brother who's incredibly helpful. He works for a Department of Homeland Security. He just seems to know everything about everything. Um, but the one thing I have learned from my brother and other agents is that things don't always go as they're supposed to. So if, you know, there's always human error, there's people who are screwing up their jobs, and if everything went exactly to protocol, you wouldn't have much of a mystery thriller, you know? It would just get dragged down in bureaucratic rules and it would happen over, just so slowly it would be unbearable. So, so with any mystery thriller or television show, you're taking creative licenses to make it more interesting and more engaging and you're not always following protocol or you simply couldn't have as fascinating a story. Uh, yeah, that's great. Well, I, I enjoyed the book and uh, of course you, you got another one coming out soon. <laughs> so that's great. Yeah, yep. That's great. Uh, so as we wrap up here, um, Jennifer, you, you really have taken to this writing thing. What is it that, uh, what is it about writing that you love so much? Um, Hmm. <laughs> that should be an easy question. Like I just love that you set a goal to write a book. You have something to look forward every every day. You look forward to to creating that next scene, polishing that next scene, um, moving the story along. I, I just find that so enjoyable and rewarding. So I, I guess that's what it is. Any tips for those uh, indie authors out there who are saying, "I've been knocking my head against the wall. I don't feel like I'm." you know, getting enough readers. I don't feel like I'm making you know, a splash here. You know, what, what are your thoughts and tips? And Yeah, um, well, the first thing I would say is to, to pick a genre. Don't skip around. If you pick mystery thriller, stick with it. Don't go write a, um, a romance next and then a YA book. Stick, stick to one lane, stick to one genre so that the people that religiously read that genre find you and we'll move right on to your next book and be excited about the book after that. So that's the first thing. If, if it's just for you, do whatever the heck you want. But if you really want to build a reader base, stick to one genre. And then the second thing is don't give up because you just never know how close you are to hitting your goals, whatever they may be. It could be the next book is what changes everything or, or a revised blurb changes everything or, or one ad that someone shares and it goes viral. You just never know what that next thing is that, that could change everything for you. And if you give up, it's not going to happen. So to be as smart as you can, learn as much as you can so that you're doing the right things and don't give up. Yeah, that's great. It, it is a process and you have to you know, you have to just keep at it, keep learning. As you said, you keep trying new things. I keep trying new things. And, I, and I'll and i probably call you again, Jennifer, and bounce something else off of you. Sometime. Anytime. I love to talk about this. So anytime, anytime. Yeah, yeah. and we'll get you back on the podcast too. Hey, thanks so much for being uh, on Charlotte's podcast and, uh, and continued uh, good luck and good fortune to you in the writing world. Thank you. Same to you. All right, so there you go. Uh, as I said, link the interview, but a uh, good one. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, topics covered. Uh, we went from everything from why to choose indie publishing to picking a social media platform to using Kindle Unlimited for your eBooks uh, to how to publish more than one book a year and build a backlist to how to use, utilize beta readers, uh, tools for self-editing, timing and pricing of pre-orders, planning a book launch, audio produ book production, and book advertising with Amazon. So, it, you know, just a 
a big mouth. Oh, book advertisement with Facebook ads too and BookBub. Those are a big three. Uh, talk about that a second. Hannah, you can probably weigh in on this, but she she describes, as you know from the interview, uh, she considers um, you know Amazon with the uh, Kindle deals and the Prime Reading and the ads that go with it, the Facebook ads and the BookBub is her big three for advertising. I assume you as a marketing person agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I, I think those are the big three for sure, especially like... I don't know. I think Amazon, since it's a marketplace, there's just so many different ways that you could utilize their sales tools and marketing tools and just target advertising in general. And, um, you know, I think it's it can scare a lot of people because they're like, well, I don't want to like advertising dollars is always a scary thing for independent authors, I think. Um, But there's just so many ways that you can do that and grow your business. And then with stuff like BookBub, which is, you know, targeted to readers specifically and writers. Um, and then Facebook kind of getting out into that like 2 billion user space. It's kind of like if you're missing, if you're not doing one of those three, it's it's kind of going to mess up your whole advertising campaign, I think. Yeah, I found it interesting that she, used prim- she uses primarily Facebook ads. She says she does Amazon ads because she's afraid not to, you know, and she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, like I said, it's scary. It's like scary to a lot of people. But I mean, I can guarantee you it helps her with the full campaign. Yeah, and the book bub, um, you know, that's that's not just a way to sell books, but it's also a way, a way to get awareness. Um, the book bub feature that ran for my book, Daily Decorations, I just realized there were 30,000 downloads from that book bub, you know, feature. And that's, that's like, and that, now look, I gave it away so free, great. but as a result of that, I've already gotten more than 400 reviews on Amazon as a result of that. Not all of them are favorable, but, Ninety percent of more brand awareness there. Like that's thirty thousand people reading your book. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, ninety percent are good, all good. But just getting the awareness out there, I think, is helpful. But uh, Sarah, what were you you know listening to this uh, episode um, of this interview? What were some of your takeaways, thoughts about this that uh, you you know you as as an author took into consideration? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I got a lot out of this interview. I I was listening to it thinking, you know, if I do ever try to self-publish something, I'm going to come back to this and just pull out my notebook and like make a checklist of (laughs) this is what I need to do because she gives so much good concrete information. It's not just sort of like, oh, self-publishing is about working hard. Like she gives really detailed information. Um, And so do you, Landis, in the interview. So that was really helpful. Um, I think I was impressed at how hands-on she is. Like she formats her own books in Microsoft Word. She's very kind of granular about how she approaches the the advertising and where she puts her time and her money and all of that. Um, but she also sort of knows what she wants to do and what she can do well and what to outsource. Like she does the formatting, but she has someone else do the covers. And she, um, I think she said that she uses an editor. So, or like with advertising, she decides to, you know, put more effort into some channels than others. So she's very conscious about it, which I think is a good takeaway. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Like even with her audiobook narration, like how she will go through beforehand and edit the book to take out dialogue t- tags so mm-hmm. that the, narrators can read it aloud without those because they're not really as necessary when you're actually reading it out loud like that that's something that makes sense but I've never heard anyone say before they do that so um, she just had a really a lot of really good information and tactics Um, and overall I was just kind of inspired by how she seems to enjoy that part of the process I feel like for myself, sometimes I feel this way and I hear a lot of writers say like, oh, I just want to write and I don't want to have to worry about the marketing and getting stuff published and all of that. Like we just want to write and then somehow have it appear to millions of people. (laughs) Um, But Jennifer seems like she really embraces the business side of it and she kind of likes the challenge of that. 
Um, so I thought that was cool to see that she gets excited by that part of it as well. Yeah. And as I was interviewing her and as I think back on it as well, um, it, it, it reminds me that, uh, you know, becoming an author uh, is a marathon, not a sprint. And you can't let everything ride on your first book or your second book. You don't know exactly when, um, you know, a particular story that you write is going to resonate with a large number of people. And it could be that, yeah, you wrote a great story for your first book, but you didn't know what the hell you were doing when it came to promoting it uh, or getting it out there. Or maybe you did it well in bookstores, but you also didn't do it well online. I found it very interesting that she doesn't even hardly mess with bookstores because, as she mentions, um, you know, you're sort of behind the curve trying to compete with the, the big five. I guess they're trying to be the big four now. I heard that Stephen King mm-hmm. went and testified in the merger lawsuit to try to to oppose that. that. But, uh, you know, if they cut down to four, then you've got this this mighty group of companies that are out there making all these deals with bookstores to put their their books up front and turn them out and have these specials. And you're just an indie publisher trying to go around and get your book in different bookstores. It's very hard to compete with that. So she, uh, like a lot of indie publishers I know, um, are concentrating their efforts primarily uh, in the indie world. And I think, you know, and I heard somebody else talk about how, you know, maybe what you ought to do is focus on some regional bookstore, you know, relationships, uh, but put a lot of your energy into the online world if you're going to publish independently, because it is hard to compete uh, with Mm -hmm. those. And uh, she also, you know, I found it interesting that she talked about the, you know, Kindle Unlimited, Uh, a lot of published, independent publishers go wide, they go with her ebooks everywhere, but uh, she decides to place them with Kindle Unlimited, and she talks about how, when she runs BookBub deals, as you know, that uh, it expands the readership with uh, page reads, and she gets paid that way. So I don't know. I think it. I think you know her success. Also, you noticed how many books she writes a year, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, I, you, I felt lazy listening yeah, to that. <laughs> you, you put out two or three books a year, and then you can mm-hmm. promote your backlist. And I think there's a you know. In in that alone is a big secret of how to, you know, make some money, you know, as a as as an author. So, a lot of good stuff. Um, you know, we could. I uh, also found this interesting. She talked about pre-orders. Now, a lot of people put their books up for mm-hmm. pre-order to reduce price, and she said, "No, nah, don't do that. The people are going to pre-order your book. They're the ones who love you. You know." <laughs> Yeah, that's a great they're point. They're going to buy it anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's a good point. Uh, put it up at the regular price and uh, price it. She says she prices it at five ninety nine, a little bit more than, you know, what some indies do. But uh, you know, she's still doing well with it. Um, yeah, I found the same thing, sir. I found it uh, very helpful, and that's why we've got this uh, these takeaways. We'll put some of them in the show notes. Um, I'm going to keep mm. them. Um, refer back to that uh, interview. You know, the next time I do a book launch. Um, and, uh, you know, try to get those deals. I'm also probably going to take uh, a course. Uh, she recommended Mark Dawson and some others. I'm probably going to sign up with a for a course with Mark Dawson if I can get into his group on Facebook and Amazon Advertising because I think I, I'm, I'm assuming everybody should just learn how to do that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's a good course. It's really good. It's super in-depth, and he updates the modules all the time, which is really helpful because, like, it changes so much from platform to platform, and, and some of the courses out there don't do that, so it's nice to have that kind of, like, like you can trust that that'll be up-to-date. Yeah. 
We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, welcome back, listeners, to our Act Three. Uh, this is a we've got a really interesting uh, segment here involving five authors, five debut authors: uh, Neil Carmichael, Amy Peacock, Emily Johnson, Tim Eichenbrenner, and Delphine McClelland. Uh, and we're going to uh, talk to them about four topics important to writing and publishing one's first book, and then we're going to weigh in on what they share with us. The thing I really like about this, and we'll probably be doing some more of this. Uh, in, in the future, um, this is allowing us to feature more authors. We could not have featured all the authors we're featuring on this show if we were doing this podcast the old way. And probably we'll do some more of this in the future. We'll pick some topics. We'll get some authors to come and weigh in on those topics. And and we'll be featuring their books, but also featuring their expertise and their experience and going through what they did. And um, what we'll do is uh, rather than just talk about each of these authors beforehand, we're going to introduce the topics, and uh, we'll, we'll play a little bit of their their answers on each of the topics, and then we will uh, introduce a couple of the authors after each topic, and then we'll move on to the next topic. But uh, this is this is a way to listen to the experience of other authors and uh, what they went through and putting out their first book and maybe some lessons learned as well. And, and the first topic that uh, we present to them is uh, – the steps they took and the writing practices they adopted to write the first draft. So let's listen, and then uh, Sarah and Hannah and I will weigh in on that, and uh, we'll introduce the authors from two of the authors from the segment. I'm Neil Carmichael, author of The Thorn. The book is a biblical historical fiction novel set against the backdrop of the events recorded in the New Testament book of Acts. The story brings to life the struggles two men face when dealing with the uncertainty of trusting God after the very foundations of their faith have been shaken. Here's how I went about writing the thorn. I started with a sketch of an outline in my mind, and I simply sat down one day at the computer and started writing. After I'd completed about eight chapters or so, I sent them to a friend who happened to be an author who'd written and published over 20 faith-based novels, and I asked him if he'd be kind enough to review what I'd written and provide me feedback, which he did. His most helpful suggestion was for me to read the book titled Self-Editing for Fiction Writers. I read the book twice, made extensive notes, and then continued writing The Thorn using what I'd learned. My name is Amy Rupertus Peacock. I am the co-author of Old Breed General, a narrative nonfiction biography about my Marine grandfather, Major General William Henry Rupertus, who was born in Washington, D.C. in 1889 and died in Washington, D.C. in 1945. He served in the Marine Corps from 1913 to 1945. He is most known for writing My Rifle, the Creed of a United States Marine, also known as the Rifleman's Creed, and leading the 1st Marine Division in the Pacific during World War II, and as a namesake, for a U.S. naval destroyer, the USS Rupertus, which served our country from 1945 to 1973. As I began this journey to get this story down for family history and the Marine Corps, I knew what we had in our trunks, which were telegrams, 
photographs, letters, condolence letters, all, all sorts of things you can imagine, just gems of history in our trunks. But I knew I needed to figure out what the military had. So I found out he had a 700-page file at the national, U.S. National Archives that needed to be digitized. So I got some help from a congressional office to get that done. Then I went to the Marine Corps History Division and asked for his service record during the time he served in the Marine Corps from 1913 to 1945 and numerous oral histories and record records of events that would um, help me fill in the data of, of what he was doing and what, what were the Marines, Marine officers doing that he was with in the Pacific. So that was hugely valuable. At that point, I could begin to synthesize the data in combination with what we already had to build a story and a first draft. I'm Emily Johnson, co-author of Bird of Paradise, a family saga and romance that follows the decade-long journey of Ariana Haywood as she seeks to find her place in the world, discovering that from the ashes of unimaginable tragedy, life's greatest beauty can be found. The people of her island have long believed that some love stories are meant to last forever. Will hers be one of them? Bird of Paradise is a unique background in how it was written. The book was begun by my mom when she was diagnosed with advanced stage cancer. She passed away before finishing, leaving that task to me. The first step in the writing process for me was to get to know her characters, their motivations, and the journey on which they had already begun to embark. I knew exactly where I wanted the story to end, so I wrote that first and then backtracked my way to the black and white line of where she stopped and I began. From there, I had to go back to what she had written and add conversations and events that would lead and support where I took the story to ensure a seamless transition. My mom did an incredible amount of research to ensure accuracy in time and places, so I had to make sure I did the same along the way. However, at this point, I didn't pay too much attention to the writing style. I just wrote the story, knowing the editing process would be where the technical aspect of writing would come in. Hi, I'm Tim Eichenbrenner, author of To Live in the Light, a contemporary Christian fiction that explores the journey of a man's personal and professional challenges, his downward spiral, and his miraculous recovery to a life renewed and a faith restored. I'm what's known as a pantser. That is, over the three and a half years I spent on the book, I wrote by the seat of my pants with no outline. Of course, I had a sense of where I wanted my main character to be by the end of the book, but how he would get there, I didn't actually know. I wrote almost daily, but at no set time of day, with a goal of writing at least 500 words a day. I didn't always reach my goal, and as I said, some days I didn't write at all. I chalked that up to just not being inspired that day, so it was probably better not to write. Hi, I'm Delphine McClelland, author of Dark Obsessions, an adult paranormal romance novel that tells the explosive love story of vampire Cairo Van Dorn and his human love interest, Skylar Montgomery, that takes place right here in Charlotte, North Carolina. While the idea to write Dark Obsessions was not my own, it was one that was given to me by my co-worker, John Volstead. I am an avid reader, and John took interest in the books that I was reading and the way in which I retold those stories to him. He believed that I was a writer, a storyteller, and suggested that I should write a book. 
Every day he saw me, he suggested that. And every day I laughed at him and told him, no, I'm not a writer. I'm a reader. One day after waking up from a dream that I had, an idea popped into my head about a vampire novel. I took that idea and I grabbed a notebook and a pen. I sat down and I started jotting down ideas, developing characters. And before I knew it, I had written the first six chapters of Dark Obsessions in a notebook by pen and paper. As I read back over those six chapters, I thought maybe this is something that I could do. So I grabbed my computer after learning and researching how to write a manuscript, and I started writing Dark Obsessions. All right, well, that's going to give us a lot to talk about here. Before we do, let me just tell you a little bit about uh, two of the five authors. We'll tell you about the others um, after our next segments. But uh, the first two you heard from Neil Carmichael and Amy Peacock. Neil, he had 36 years of conflict management experience as an executive with the world's largest not-for-profit dispute resolution organization. I actually took a course back with him uh, many, many years ago on uh, how to be an arbitrator. He's a native of London, England, holds a Master of Arts degree from Reformed Theological Seminary uh, and lives in Charlotte. Um, he likes uh, swimming, hiking, Atlanta's Braves baseball and corporate worship. And, uh, you know, I guess uh, that really people say, well, how do you become a writer? He he took a route. Uh, I mean, like I'm a, I'm a former trial lawyer. He's a former dispute resolution person and found it that way. Uh, Amy Peacock, uh, she's a graduate of UGA's uh, journalism school, a blogger, author, speaker, community leader, uh, a run coach uh, with uh, Girls on the Run. She's involved in the Joe Martin Foundation for ALS. Her book, uh, I think, uh, inspired by her you know, her connection to her grandfather that she talked about in that, that piece. Uh, but she also did it uh, with someone else, uh, another writer. Uh, and so she found her way into writing a little bit different. With it. And we'll talk about the other authors in a minute. But let's dive in for a minute on first drafts. Uh, I know both of you have, have thoughts on first drafts. Yeah, I mean, I think just listening to these different stories, it was striking how different they all are from each other. I mean, there's no one way that you get an idea for a book or one way that you start a book. Some some of these authors got an idea from a coworker or a family member or were, you know, researching a true story. Um, so it's just such a unique process. And people ask, like, well, how do you get an idea for a book or where do your ideas come from? And you just, you can't control that sort of thing. You just get the ideas and then you start working on it. So the diversity of the, their backgrounds, I think, was interesting to me. I like Tim's terminology of pantser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's pretty funny and clever because, I mean, yeah, it's you're totally right, Sarah. It's interesting how everyone kind of has a different origin for how they come up with what they're writing about. And not everyone has an outline or not everyone kind of is super organized with their thoughts, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't, you know, the story doesn't find itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the creativity, I think, is definitely really interesting for everybody. Yeah, I think, you know, a number of things that I was jotting down here, you know, one of them just started just started writing and then, you know, sort of found their way into the story. Then you have the outlining versus the pantser. Uh, I noticed that uh, Amy did a lot of research before she started writing. Um, you know, then there's the story that's handed down by the mother, um, Emily's mm-hmm. story. That is really fascinating that you would, uh, and so she has to understand, as she said, the, uh, the characters' motivations and desires, which each of us has to understand if we're going to write a book that people resonate with uh, about the characters, understanding what they want, what they need to achieve, and then putting mm-hmm. some obstacles <laughs> in their place, and so so they can't so they can't get there. 
and then you have the right daily versus right when you're inspired. Um, I found it interesting, uh, Delphine's, uh, you know, yeah. she's an avid reader. And when somebody said, well, like, no, I'm a you're reader. a great storyteller. She <laughs> yeah, said, no, no, I'm, I'm a, a reader. I'm not a writer. I'm, I'm just a reader. But you know what? The more, it sounds like she reads so much that that probably mm-hmm. helped her storytelling. Oh, for sure. Well, I think yeah, it, it's like she, you have to be a reader to be a writer, right? And I think, don't we, we've talked about that before. It's just like the two definitely go hand in hand. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, read too in the genre that uh, you enjoy writing in, and uh, you'll pick up some things, and then read outside your genre, to, and you'll get other ideas as well. I mean, everything from point of view, where to start. Uh, it was funny in, earlier when I was recommending the Lincoln Highway. He worked some uh, writing tips into the book because little Billy, uh, who's the eight-year-old, is going to write about their adventure, and he says, and he carries around this little book that uh, some professor wrote that. Uh, sort of breaks down the 30 hero journeys into like eight pages each so that the eight-year-old can kind of digest them. And he talks about, uh, he says, now the professor says, you know, you've got to start in the middle. And so I've got to start my story in the middle. He says, I just don't know where the middle is. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's the same thing, you know, for for authors too. You know, we think we're starting in the middle sometimes, but no, we're starting with too much backstory and we need to start in the middle and then start to to fill things back in. But... uh, all right, so we got another topic here that uh, they're going to uh, weigh in on, which is the next phase in the process, uh, what they did to take their book from first draft to final draft. So let's listen in, and then uh, we'll uh, talk a little bit about that and, and one of the other authors. As far as the editing process goes, my approach may be a bit different than most. I extensively edited each chapter before I moved on to the next one. At times, I would edit and re-edit a paragraph or even a sentence before I moved on to the next paragraph or sentence. Once I was satisfied with the on-screen version of a chapter, I read it out loud and edited it again as needed. I then printed it, read it, and edited it one final time before moving on to the next chapter. Once the manuscript was finished, I read through it twice, making edits as I went. I then sent my final manuscript to my editor, and based on her feedback, I made the final edits. In order for the book to go from first draft to final draft, it took about five years. Eventually, I worked with a developmental editor. I met Tracy Crow. She's a former Marine, and she gave me some great ideas on the manuscript as well as did, did some copy editing. At that point, I sent the manuscript to the Naval Institute Press, and the feedback I got from both Tracy and the peer reviewer at the Naval Institute Press was that this is a story that must be told, but it would be helpful for me as a writer, as a civilian, to partner with someone who is military or who has written in this genre of World War II Pacific, just to make it the best story it could be. So I went back to my friend Don Brown, a local Charlotte attorney, former U.S. Navy JAG officer and author of a recent World War II book, Pacific book, to see if he would help see me, you know, join me to see this to the finish line. He agreed, and we just had, in order for him to agree, we had to drop the reader in the Pacific in 1942. So I had to really limit my manuscript. 
but that was a good decision, I believe. And the reader will find themselves on a ship in the Pacific racing with the fleet, racing to meet the Japanese. My first draft was really just the storyline. When I got to the editing part, I had to work to make sure my writing style matched my mom's writing style in order to make the book seamless. My mom was very descriptive and poetic, like a movie playing out on the pages of the book. I am in marketing and advertising as a profession, and brevity is definitely valued over description. I had to go back over and over again, adding layer upon layer of detail in order to bring my writing style up to the descriptive style of hers. Since, like my mom, I took inspiration from my memories and places I've been, I was able to pull out old photos and use Google images to help create a basis upon which I could build. Emotionally, I was able to draw from my experience and feelings at certain times in my life and wrap them into the fictional story of each character. This took many passes to achieve in order to get to what I believed was good enough to move forward. I'd always heard that writers get into the skin, if you will, of their protagonist. And in fact, I experienced that with Jack, the book's main character, as I put him and other characters in situations, predicaments, and places I didn't see coming. As I wrote, I discovered the outcomes of those scenes that moved the story forward. I preferred to write new content one day and then self-edit it the following day. Only then would I move on to writing new content. When I finished the first draft of the manuscript, I reread it, correcting mistakes and improving on the arc or flow of the story. I probably reread the manuscript six or eight times. Once I was happy with it and thought it was as good as I could get it, I sent it to an independent developmental editor who read it and offered some suggestions on how to improve the story. At her recommendation, for example, I added another character to the manuscript that improved it greatly and added greater depth to a character already in the story. While writing Dark Obsessions, I basically became a hermit for the first two years of the writing process. I literally locked myself away in my room. I sat on my bed with my computer, sitting on top of the board games, Don't Break the Ice and Perfection, because I didn't have a traditional desk at the time. Writing this book literally became my life. I would wake up in the morning. I would grab my computer. I would grab my makeshift desk of perfection and don't break the ice. I would get comfortable on my bed and I would type until I had nothing else to type. I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I barely ate. I barely slept. I barely got off the bed to go to the bathroom or do anything until I was at a stopping point until I had no more ideas or nothing left in me to write. All right. Well, uh, we, <laughs> so again, the the beauty of this is we've got, you know, five different ways to go about it, but some common themes in it. But uh, Hannah, tell us about uh, Tim, and then we'll move on to some discussion here. Yeah. So Tim Eichenbrenner is a retired pediatrician who lives in Charlotte. So he's local um, as a physician and an individual who experienced a faith crisis in his own life after a tragic personal loss. He felt uniquely qualified to write his book, To Live in the Light. Tim has published an article titled Managing Crisis in Marriage in Soul Food, the Email Division of Living by Design Ministries. He also has a blog website, um, posts a new blog titled Tuesday Thoughts Every Other Tuesday. Um, to Live in the Light is a novel that deals with the tragedy of a young man losing his young wife and having to find his way back. 
Yeah, and uh, I think uh, Tim was the one who talked about uh, writing one day, self-editing the next, uh, before yeah. moving on, and then eventually getting a developmental editor, which also was echoed uh, by other uh, authors here, the use of a developmental editor. Which is um, great. I think there's some some yeah. purpose to that and some logic to that. Thoughts on that, Sarah? Yeah, I think it's it's great that they hired editors. I mean, when you're writing a book, you're so inside your own head with it. You really need that outside feedback and outside perspective. So um, whether it's hiring an editor, whether it's having beta readers, people in your writers groups, some combination of all those things, I think you need people to, to read your work and weigh in on it. Um, and some of these writers even talked about working with other people in different ways. Like Amy had a co-writer that she, she began working with um, partway through the process who it sounds like once she started working with him, she kind of focused in her story into like a narrower version of it. Um, or with um, Emily working with her mother's draft and she had to balance between their different styles. So I think that's um, a valid lesson in um, sort of compromise in writing and how you have to um, balance your work with the ideas of other people and sometimes that can be difficult but it ends up making the product stronger in the end yeah i echo that i think having a developmental letter i i, I found it interesting that several of the authors i think it was neil and also uh, tim were you know editing before they would move on to the next chapter yeah and, uh, sometimes to me that kind of slows me down a little bit um if, if i get into a flow you know but uh, i understand the logic of it you know you want to make sure that you can get sort of things wrapped up. Uh, for me, it's not as much editing, you know, down to get it exactly right as it is editing to be sure I have some placeholders in there and some red herrings in there, some things in there before I, you know, kind of start writing the next chapter that might take the story in a little bit different or surprising direction. But uh, how about Delphine? That was kind of fun. I want to hang uh, out with Delphine. <laughs> <laughs> Her yeah, work ethic she, is putting me to shame too. <laughs> Big, big work ethic. Uh, big work ethic. Uh, I feel like hers is most similar to how I am. Actually, it's just kind of like you just go in and like get it all out, and then you deal with it later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she's a perfect. Well, if you're writing a vampire novel, I mean, locking yourself in a dark room yeah, might be yeah, a exactly. good way to <laughs> method writing. <laughs> what we do in the shadows going on. <laughs> I wonder whether the mm-hmm. fact that it came to her in a dream that the vampire was having some influence over her to get yeah. to get started writing the damn book. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get started on the book. And Emily's story is so interesting too, with having to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of have her writing style match her mother's writing style. That's a different form of mm-hmm. you know editing that usually you don't have to think about because you, as an author, you're writing. You might write in different point of views and have to approach a character's thoughts in a different way, but but writing it with another person or kind of matching that that's a challenge too i thought that so was really like, interesting yeah, especially because okay. yeah and since her mother had passed away before she started working on the novel before emily started her part normally if you have a co-writer it's kind of a back and forth and a partnership and you're able to make decisions together okay. but in this case she was working with work from somebody who she didn't have the opportunity to actually talk with and bounce things off of so it's interesting how she did that that balancing act on her own. Yeah, we'll talk more about Emily after the next segment here. In the next segment, uh, the third of our fourth uh, topics is how these authors, these debut authors, chose to publish their book and why they chose that particular publishing path. I chose to self-publish The Thorn for the following reasons. First, I have extensive experience with desktop publishing software, so I knew I could format the book's layout myself. 
I also have extensive experience in the elements of graphic design, so I knew I could design the books front and back covers myself. I also did extensive research on both traditional publishing and self-publishing and came to the conclusion that traditional publishers simply no longer provide this type of extensive support they used to give to authors. I have two friends who have each had more than 20 books published by a subsidiary of one of the nation's top five largest publishers, and they confirm that, that traditional publishing is simply no longer what it used to be, especially as an avenue for new authors. We honed the manuscript, we whipped up a solid pr- book proposal, and sent it to his agent who sent it out to publishers, his agent, Chip McGregor. And eventually we found a match and immediately we needed to begin, uh, although we had the manuscript copy edited multiple times, uh, the publisher also wanted to copy edit it. So we worked with them and going back and forth and eventually uh, got it published this February 2022. I never set out to publish Bird of Paradise. For me, it was a way to fulfill one of my mom's dying wishes, keep a connection with her through the writing, and help navigate through the grief I was feeling at the time. A client of mine knew someone in the publishing industry and suggested I send the first few chapters in. I never thought I'd hear back, but to my great surprise, I got a request for the full manuscript and shortly thereafter found myself signing a publishing contract. So I didn't choose the publishing path, it chose me. However, I'm glad that I was able to go with a small hybrid publisher. They were discerning and provided a high level of professional services while giving me the ability to be in control over the final project, which was important to me in order to stay true to my mom. Hybrid presses are wonderful in that it gives the opportunity to have many incredible stories from talented writers heard who, for completely unrelated reasons, wouldn't be able to if the big traditional publishing companies were the only option available. One of the best things writers can do is to attend writers' conferences. There, one can meet and connect with publishers, literary agents, acquisition editors, and other writers. Some, like me, seeking to publish their debut work, and others with several books under their belts. Classes are also offered that cover all aspects of writing. In 2021, I was fortunate to attend my first conference, the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Writers Conference, where I met an acquisition editor for Morgan James Publishers. He read my proposal and asked me to send him the entire manuscript. He liked it and subsequently pitched it to the publishing board at Morgan James. That led to my first publishing contract. While I was writing Darker Sessions, the publishing process chose me. I was still halfway through the book, still believing that I was never going to publish it. In my eyes, Darker Sessions was going to live on my computer for the rest of eternity. As I was working on it and I was halfway through the book, I started to think, why go through all this trouble if I'm not going to do anything with it? I should at least try to see what happens. So me being the person that I am, I started researching how to become a self-published author. It was through my research and several videos on Ingram Sparks that I realized that I probably should have a copyright. So one day I obtained a copyright for Dark Obsessions and I was sitting at home and I got a phone call from someone at Dorrance Publishing. They had found my copyright 
and went inquired about publishing my book. Once I looked into who the company was and realized that they were an established company, I couldn't pass up on the professional help. And so I signed with them and they produced my book. All right. Uh, again, some more uh, helpful uh, thoughts on the publishing process. We'll talk about in a second. But uh, Sarah, how about uh, sharing a little bit about Emily Johnson? Yeah, so um, Emily was born in Aspen, Colorado, where she enjoyed skiing, dancing, ballet, and playing golf. Um, at 13, she and her family moved to Pinehurst, North Carolina. Uh, she attended UNC Chapel Hill, where she got degrees in journalism and mass communication with a concentration in public relations. She enjoys playing golf, running, kickboxing, reading, and spending time with her family. Her book, Birds of Paradise, is a story with a bit of romance and life struggle, but um, it has an interesting backstory behind it. As she mentioned before, her mom began Bird of Paradise when she was diagnosed with advanced stage cancer and passed away, leaving the novel unfinished. Soon after that, Emily found a letter from her mother with one request that she finished the story for her. Um, and it's been really interesting to hear about how she went about that process, I think, and using a partial manuscript and partial research and then weaving in her own work into that. Yeah, and also a bit of pressure there. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. you get you get a yeah, letter. Yeah, that's a uh, great incentive to write a book. Please, please finish this book, you know. But uh, but she did mm -hmm. it, and credit to her. All right, let's talk publishing path. By my count, it looks like we had uh, two um, of the authors went with. Uh, it looks like three of them went with sort of a hybrid approach. Um, one went with a traditional mm -hmm. publisher with a nonfiction book, and then Neil did uh, Neil Carmichael did fully indie publishing. So. That seems to be the, the the spectrum. It's traditional. It's uh, it's indie. It's hybrid. Um, and you know, as I think about this, um, having looked at traditional publishing, and having published uh, independently, uh, some of the things Neil said are are valid in the sense that um, you know, if you're with a smaller traditional publisher, um, you're going to be working as hard as an author. Uh, to get your book in bookstores as if you were doing it independently. So in that respect, why not be independently published? And then you can also put it out and control it and that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. then, you know, with, if, and this is echoing earlier, but if, if, and if you can get in with the a traditional publisher, that's part of that big four, big five, sure. That's great. But sir, you had that experience, but did you always get the marketing help you wanted? Maybe you did. Maybe you're one of those fortunate ones. Yeah, I mean, I definitely got a lot of help from the publisher in terms of setting up some bookstore appearances and just obviously getting the book out there is a, a huge part of it. And I didn't have to do as much of that. Um, I, but I still had to actively look for appearances for myself. And that's something I actually, in hindsight, you know, I, I came into the process very green and I wish that I had known that it was more important to do that up front. And I wish I had taken advantage of more of that on my own, you know, when the book was coming out. Um, but most of the appearances, podcasts, blogs, anything that I've done for the book has been something that I've secured, not the publisher. But, but your book also probably had the ability to get in stores and you got it translated into other mm -hmm. languages too. That came about because of your traditional publishing relationship, right? Yeah. And getting an audiobook and all that, like I, I didn't have to handle any of that, which is a huge help. And Hannah, you've seen it uh, from all sides because you represent traditionally published authors and indie authors. Um, we'll talk about hybrid publishing in a second, but what are some of your thoughts on traditional versus indie? 
Yeah, I mean, I think Emily had a good point, too, that I, I mean, she's with a hybrid publisher, but I would say the same thing goes for self-published books and the aspect of control. Um, a lot of the time, you know, if you're indie publisher, the biggest thing is having more control over the process. So you kind of have, are able to, um, like, say yes or no to the cover design or, like, you know, all that kind of stuff, like, creatively. And I think that's a big draw for a lot of people in indie indie publishing world. Um, I think the big thing with a traditional publisher is the network. So, and you can probably speak to that too, Sarah, just like the network is huge and just putting the book out there and having those resources on the back end is a really big help to a lot of people. Um, but there's also a longer timeline too, I would say that goes with traditionally publishing a book because like, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. you're working with a much larger team of people, both on the back end and the front end of that. Whereas if you're in- indie or independently publishing a book, you're kind of like, it's your timeline. You know what I mean? Like you can kind of do what you need to do. Um, and they both work. I mean, they're both great. It's just kind of about like what your goals are. So, you know, for somebody like, I'm going to use Emily again, just who, um, she wanted to have more control. Uh, she, she had a kind of more of a timeline. She wanted to get this done. She wanted to get this out there. It's like, that's something that works a lot better to kind of go with a hybrid or just independently publishing or, um, you know, with Delphine, I would say too, just like, you know, making yourself, just making the resources accessible to you. So just watching the videos or taking a Mark Dawson course, all that kind of stuff. You can do all of it yourself. It's just how much do you want Mm -hmm. to invest into it? Whereas like if you're traditionally publishing, you're going to have a lot more help with that. And that's got, got good things and bad things that go with it. Yeah, I think that's a great point that maybe it's helpful to think about what kind of person, what kind of writer yeah. you are and what your goals are for your career. It's it's not the one path that's going to be necessarily better right. in general, but different paths are better for different people. Like even with our, our talk with Jennifer Ruff earlier, I mean, she in a lot of ways seems like an ideal person to be doing right. any publishing she because so many books too. Like she couldn't do that <laughs> yeah like she probably <laughs> wouldn't be doing book. putting out yeah. two books a year like, yeah. yeah no way um, she, she actually she yeah. actually came from uh some her first couple of books were traditionally published and she found out that she was writing faster than they would publish them so that was mm-hmm. one of the reasons she chose to do it and again i think we have to highlight the difference between a small press traditionally published and a larger press that has a much larger network i mean you know, getting yourself in bookstores all over the country and, and having it put in foreign networks and that kind of thing. You know, if you can do that with traditional publishing, sure. You know, but remember that you're not going to be able to put as many books a year and they might not pick mm-hmm. up your next book. And if you're writing a series, you got issues there. But one thing to highlight too about hybrid is, um, and India is, you know, with control comes the ability and the obligation to write checks, <laughs> you know, yeah. mm-hmm. you got to pay for everything, you know, and, you know, some people can't do that. And so they might look for a hybrid arrangement. Just be sure that if you get a hybrid arrangement, read the contract carefully. Um, a hybrid publisher is not a traditional publisher. A hybrid publisher is uh, something in between. And you need to understand what they're providing to you uh, and figure out whether or not, you know, you can do that yourself. Uh, just as cost effectively. I mean, like Neil Carmack, he did his own formatting. He did his own covers, whatever. Well, you can also find out what it costs to get a cover. Um, uh, you know, for my book, Daily Declarations, I think I got the cover for the print book, the ebook, the audio book, and got 3D dimensions and a couple of other things for about 550 to $700. So you could factor that into your equation, you know, 
Um, the other thing is with hybrid is they're going to take money out of every sale that you get over time. Traditional is the other way around. They take everything, give you a little bit of percentage. But look, if they're putting it in stores all over the place, you know, that little bit of percentage can add up too. So there are a lot of factors in there to think about. Any any parting thoughts on this? Because we've talked about some of this before, but it's interesting to me that how many different approaches these folks went about using and they're mm-hmm. still happy with, you know, the fact that they're now their book is now in the world. And if they had not chosen that path, maybe it wouldn't have gotten into the world. Yeah, and I think like one thing that I just think of all the time, and it could, we can honestly talk about this forever I feel like but writing a book is like a business um so that was one thing I really liked about what Jennifer was saying it's it's like you can't really just kind of go into it and be like okay well (laughs) I did this thing here it is like Mm -hmm. you really do have to do the research especially if you are going to be an independently published author or go with a hybrid press or you know anything like that it's like you have to understand okay well this is going to take time first of all in the you know to your point Landis um the ability to write checks like you're going to have to pay for (laughs) this stuff to see a return like any business because that's that is essentially what it is it's starting a business and um with traditionally published or publishers and stuff like that um you know you can look at it a little bit less like a business but it still is like it's it's still a partnership and you have to do work too and so i think like one of the big things with writing a book in general, no matter what direction you go with it, is like you just have to look at it as it's a bench, as a business venture and think about your brand and think about like what you want to write in the future. How many books are you going to write? Stuff like that. It, it all kind of feeds into the same thing. It's really almost too much to think about when you're writing your first book. <laughs> <isn't> it? <laughs> yeah. It's a big idea. <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally true. And you do have to think about all those things, but you don't have to necessarily think about all of them right away Mm -hmm. when you're first starting a a book. I mean, a lot of these authors who we heard from today, they just had an idea and started writing it. And then they kind of figured the process out as they went along. So it helps to be prepared. It helps to do your research. But I think also don't feel like, oh, I can't start writing something if I don't have my whole career planned out. (laughs) You can figure some of it out as you go. go. All right. Well, we got one more. And I love this uh, question. I used to ask it all the time on the before 300, post 300, whatever I used, <laughs> whatever we called it before it was beyond 300. Uh, when I was interviewing authors, I always asked this question. I think I probably asked you this question too, Sarah. Uh, what these authors wish they had known before they got started about the process of writing and publishing uh, their first book. So let's listen in to some of the lessons learned. As for what I wish I had known before I got started writing The Thorn, it's really simply this. I wish I had known how much I would enjoy researching and writing faith-based historical fiction. If I had, I would have started writing a lot sooner. Huh, looking back, what I wish I'd known when I began. Possibly partner with an early reader who would have picked up on some marine reader who would have picked up on some of the marine lingo that we either left out or got wrong or autocorrect messed up. (laughs) Um, Also stick with my ideal reader. I literally just discovered this week that the ideal reader really is you. It is you who wants to get this information and this historical information. You want to fill in all the gaps. And due to the fact we had to, shorten the book because of word count, we couldn't get all the history in that we wanted to. So that was a little disappointing, but the good news is the book is out. We worked really hard 
and we hope that the readers will enjoy the story. Since I never intended to publish Bird of Paradise, there really isn't too much I wish I had known before getting started with the publishing and writing process. One thing that has surprised me, however, is how hard it is to market a book, and this is coming from someone who does marketing for a profession. Even with the backing of my publisher, it's very difficult to know what will and will not work or resonate with your target audience. For me, this is particularly difficult because I didn't write with an audience in mind, although I think that is a good thing because it means the writer is writing for themselves, which is where the passion comes out most. Personally, I don't have the means to hire a professional agent or pay thousands of dollars to compete with the big boys. So it's a lot of getting creative, trial and error, and not giving up. That is by far the most important thing I've discovered through the process, not giving up. It's a long but rewarding process in the end. I didn't discover the importance of a platform for prospective authors until two years ago. In today's world, publishers no longer handle all the marketing of a book. They expect the author to be actively engaged in that process, and they want to know the author has people who follow his or her writing. These are the most likely people to buy the book. The larger one's platform, the better it is. I started a blog website in July of 2020 and have been posting a blog every other Tuesday since then. While I still blog, I now use the site to publicize the novel's September release. Had I known the importance of growing my following, I would have started that process so much earlier. What I'm glad I didn't know when I started is how difficult it is to get a publishing contract. There are a lot of rejections in the industry, so a writer has to have a thick skin. Just because a manuscript is rejected doesn't mean it's no good. It may just not meet the current needs of a particular agent or publisher. That said, anyone who feels called to write should do just that. One thing that I didn't realize when I were when I was publishing this novel was that by signing with the publishing company didn't mean I didn't erase the fact that there could be problems. My publishing journey with Darn's publishing was very frustrating and taxing as I ran into issues every step of the way. The good thing about working with a publishing company, though, is I had someone to lean on and someone to fix everything. Darnce was great about getting everything fixed and getting this project back on track. I'm happy to say that now that I have a completed book, that I'm happy with the product and I'm happy with my decision to sign with Darnce Publishing. All right, we'll start with Delphine there. Uh, Delphine McClellan was born in Statesville. Uh, right up the road here in North Carolina, where she's a graduate of Statesville Senior High School. And after graduating, she took her dreams and passion in Knoxville, where she attended and graduated from the University of Tennessee with a degree in anthropology. And um, not sure how that got her into writing about vampires, but uh, hey, you know, that, she was obsessed with, with that. Uh, but uh, her passion for reading, as she said, is what channeled her into writing that first novel, uh, Dark Obsessions. And uh, she set that uh, novel, um, Paranormal Romance, uh, in Charlotte, uh, so uh, you know, be careful if you live in the Queen City <laughs> because you, you, you never know about the vampires. Though you never know what may be hiding in the dark alleys. Uh, so yeah, so that's uh, that's our five authors, and just this last one. Um, uh, what do y'all think? That was interesting. Um, you know, people talked about being surprised at what they 
didn't know. Some of them were glad they didn't know certain things. Uh, some of them were mm-hmm. wish they had known certain things. Uh, others just realized that there were things they didn't know, but they're glad they know them now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it, it's such a learning process and learning experience for everyone. And all these authors, their journey was so different, but they all had surprises along the way. So I guess the main takeaway for me is just be flexible. You know, you, you can do your research, you can prepare, um, you can write an amazing book, but there's going to be surprises and there's going to be challenges and there's going to be things you have to figure out along the way. So just, you know, if you have the passion for it, then you're willing to to see that process through the end and know that it'll be worth it in the end. Yeah, I think that's totally, I love, you know, be flexible. That's, that's so true. And to, I think Emily said, don't give up. So it's like, be flexible and don't give up. Like if mm-hmm. there's these things that are happening that are kind of popping up out of nowhere and that's going to happen, um, you know, there's, it's never going to be a seamless process for any kind of project that you're working on really, you know, um, but just don't give up and kind of continue to allow yourself to learn along the way and just enjoy it. And I thought it was cool too, that, um, a couple of these folks said, you know, or was it Neil who said one thing he wish, wishes he knew is how much he would like it. <laughs> he was like, I really enjoyed doing right. this. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have done it earlier, which I think is a really great thing. Yeah. Because, you know, we're not making, you know, hundred thousand dollars. I think, well, some of, some people are, but you know, most authors aren't making a lot of money writing their books. It's a, it's a passion. It's a, mm-hmm something to do. It's kind of an adventure. So um, his point was a good one. He wished he had known sooner that it was a lot of fun and he could have started yeah. started earlier. And I, and I like the fact about, um, you know, people talk about, well, you need to find your avatar, your reader, whatever. And a couple of these folks like uh, Amy uh, and I think Emily too said, um, you know, their ideal reader was themselves, you know, write for, mm-hmm. <laughs> write for yourself because that's where your passion yeah. comes from, right? And I know, Sarah, you like... Uh, the rom-coms and uh, I'll have to admit I kind of enjoy them too so you know <laughs> but uh, I, I enjoy the fun funny part of it you won't watch me yeah. catch me watching too many Hallmark type sure. movies but every now and then you know sure sure <laughs> around right? Christmas time you've got Hallmark on all day every day <laughs> exactly Marathon. But I, I, love the humor. I, I talked about Emily Henry's book you know book lovers I enjoyed that book but you know like you said find something you're passionate about in, in writing and um, I also found Tim's comment is one that uh, I found uh, important a lesson that I didn't know until later, and that is building your platform sooner rather than later mm-hmm. and developing some level of patience because when your first book comes out, if you're into your hybrid publishing, you just wanted to hit the press and see the magic happen, right? And you don't plan ahead. And we've talked about this before, and Hannah, you're a big part of the whole planning ahead thing, I know. And uh, But all these all these comments, I think, are helpful to anyone who's going to take it on, you know, get out there and go to writing groups, uh, subscribe to newsletters that are free from people that have done this before, um, particularly indie authors, if you're going to be indie published and traditionally uh, people that have worked in the traditional industry, if you're going to go that route, so that you're not surprised, so that you know what you're getting into. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people have this idea that if they get a traditional contract, you know, then the money's going to start flowing and, and, and all the praise will start coming in and, you know, it doesn't always work that way. It's a business. And if it doesn't earn out or they're not happy or you're not happy or whatever, you you lose sight of the fact that it was a, it was something that you really enjoyed doing at the time. Just, in, I mean, embrace that 
moment, but embrace it and give yourself five or six or seven or eight months to plan the release, right, Hannah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or more. <laughs> or more. <laughs> or more. Because you've got more than one client, right? I'm like so annoying <laughs> about that. I'm just like, no, you should know everything now. <laughs> Like, yeah. <laughs> I should probably yeah. take the flexibility <laughs> advice a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Uh, All right. Well, we're we're gonna um, come back here in just a moment, and uh, we will uh, have our final act and our wrap up and our what's coming next. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, we're back. We got Act 4, and it's a short one. Um, we, uh, we want to encourage you again to uh, go use our contact page on the website to give us some feedback, uh, jump on SpeakPipe and uh, leave us uh, a voice message, ask us a question, tell us about your book uh, in 30 seconds or less, uh, recommend another book, uh, and, you know, get on that procrastination thing because <laughs> we're going to do that episode whether you participate or not, right? So so do that. So uh, time for our takeaways and then what's coming next. So uh, I'll start with uh, Hannah. What do you I feel like with? I have a lot, honestly. I really love that last segment just with um, the five authors just answering the same questions just to see how different their experiences were. Um, and are, you know, it's, it's such an interesting thing to me, um, how writers and well, really anyone, everyone has a different creative process. Um, so I think for me, the big takeaway was that, and probably just like echoing, you know, what you said, Sarah, about flexibility for me, that was like a big point that I kind of need in my life too sometimes. <laughs> so I'm like, flexibility is good. Everyone has a different process, you know, and, um, it's, it's just interesting to hear how, people write, I think, um, and just the different things that they learn along the way and how you don't have to get stuck to one specific path, really. So you don't really have to say like, oh, I'm definitely going to be self-published or, oh, I'm, I won't do this unless I get a big five publisher or whatever. It's like you can kind of just listen to yourself um, and see where your story takes you. And it reminded me too, I don't know if you guys have read uh, much of Glennon Doyle's stuff, but she um, had a really great interview that I heard that she, she just goes, you know, I love all of you guys. Like I love my readers, but I write this, these books for me. Um, and I think I kept hearing that in my head through a lot of those, the answers to the questions, just like, you know, you have to write for you. And that's kind of the, the voice you need to listen to as you kind of embark on this publishing journey. So, yeah, I, I echo all of that for sure. Um, and I think I learned a lot today, both from, you know, the Jennifer Ruff interview, from the five author feature, even Paul Reality, Paul Reality's tip about, you know, how you space, space out your writing time and plan that. I mean, I learned a lot of kind of concrete tactical information that I think I can use. Um, and overall, I think I just feel excited about the writing and publishing process, listening to all this, because it really affirms that there are so many stories out there and there are so many ways of getting your story out there into the world. There's no one way of being an author, or one way of reaching an audience. There's so many different ways that you can approach it and you just have to find what works for you. And it's a challenge, but I think it's an exciting challenge. And you, it's, it's cool to hear about all these different writers who um, have gone through it and, and gone through the ups and downs, but are happy with the end result. So I feel excited to keep going. <laughs> yeah, there we go. we got a lot of echoes going on here because uh, I love the fact that uh, not only 
of what we've been hearing is is entertaining, but it's a learning experience too. And for me, you know, writing is all about learning. I'm either learning about the craft, and uh, if we went back and asked ourselves, and maybe I should have done this, you know, what did we learn from what we first, uh, you know, <laughs> wish we had known when we got started? But I'll, I'll just ask you again, sir. What 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 did uh, what did you wish you had known? Because it changes mm-hmm. over time. Because you all you learn something new, and you go, "Damn, I wish I knew that." You know, when I got started. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> there's a lot that I wish I had known. Um, I guess the the one big thing that I would say is something that a number of writers have mentioned today about the idea of write for yourself and be your own audience. Um, that's something that I feel like I'm still kind of adjusting to and learning how to do is to try to just focus on writing what I actually really want to write and want to read and, and mm. make that my main brand, so to speak, um, and my main alley that I'm going down as a writer. So I think that's a big one for me. That's great. And Hannah, you've had personal experiences writing, but also representing all these different authors. Is there any common theme to what you wish your authors had known before they came, <laughs> came to you? Oh, said, yeah. Hey, I want to hire you as a public one. Right. <laughs> um, honestly, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things, I think. And, and again, it depends on kind of what path the author is going down, right? So it's, I think that, um, you know, if you're, if, but I, I guess a universal thing is just you have to realize that it's a partnership. Um, so if you're looking at like writing a book, um, if you have a story that you've already written, you're submitting it around or whatever you think, you can't really go into it and think like, okay, this is it. Like I just signed with um, Random House and that's going to be the the deal here. Um, you know, you know, Random House has a million authors, right? And they have a ton of people that work there. It's really hard to get, It's and that's not to say it's not an amazing experience, but you just have to be, be prepared for that um, and just know that it's a partnership and it's something that can be really fun too, you know, and I think that's a lot of, a lot of, I've asked that question to quite a few authors I've worked with over the years, just like, what, what are your takeaways from this experience? And they're like, this is actually really fun. Like this ended up being a good time, um, working together. Like, so having a publicity person, having your editors at your publishing house and having your kind of back end team, then yourself getting yourself out there. So I think, um, that those two things is just kind of being prepared for what it means to release a book and kind of running through your goals. Like, what do you want to happen here? And then having fun with it, because if you don't have fun with it, it really, I don't think it, why do it? You know, <laughs> I think that's really important. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It should be fun and it should be something you enjoy doing. And, um, it should be characters you enjoy spending time with. And, you know, even though there's some pressure out there, sometimes you feel like, well, I got to get this done. I got to get it out there mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. If you're writing for yourself, that doesn't put as much um, pressure on you. I, I just like the fact that, uh, you know, all of these authors that we've had on the show seem to be enjoying the experience. Though, like any experience, there's going to be frustrating things along the way, but they're learning you know, and if they write another book, they're going to, from their experience, they're going to learn from that. And hopefully people listening are going to pick up some thoughts here and not have to make the mistakes that we've made, <laughs> you know, or, or learning learning from the other people's mistakes and, and picking up on that. But, uh, yeah, I thought that was great. And I, I love Jennifer's interview with all the indie publishing tips and uh, really like listening to the five authors talk about the different things. And then Tammy Hero's book and just a, a lot of good book recommendations uh, today as well. And just to finish up this uh, before we tell you about what's coming next, uh, you know, blog with us too because you're, you're going to find out that if you write a blog on the community blog and we're really building up some fantastic material there, um, you know, from experienced authors, 
we're going to put you on the podcast. We're going to talk about you, your blog. We're going to talk about you. And uh, we might even have you, um, you know, do a little reading from your blog post that we insert into the, into the convers- for the conversation. So do that. Blog with us and uh, check out our blogs. We're putting one out each month, uh, each of us, the host, uh, on, on different topics. And uh, check those out as well. So, uh, yeah, just a uh, quick, uh, quick thing here before we tell you about what's coming next. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, so uh, we got another episode coming up. Uh, we're going to record a lot of episodes this month uh, so that Hannah can <laughs> have her baby, and uh, you can still, she can still pretend like she's on the podcast. Well, she will be on the podcast. It's just we'll yeah. record early, yeah. Uh, but uh, Sarah, tell us... Uh, Tell us what's coming in uh, episode 305 later this month. Yeah, so in episode 305, um, as always, we'll have our book recommendations, our Charlotte Lit two-minute tip, and we're going to feature six authors in that episode um, with advice by authors Brian Langhoff and Tracy Buchanan, who are contributors to the Charlotte Readers Podcast community blog. We discuss tips for aspiring authors and the best tool in the author toolkit, which is perseverance. Um, we're going to feature Stephen Iwanu, I'm sure I'm butchering his last name, <laughs> and his debut novel, Rook, which is a story set in Buffalo, Buffalo New York about Al Nussbaum, who to his wife was a loving husband, father, and chess player, but to the world became the most cunning, bank-robbing fugitive alive, according to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Um, one reviewer called this book a terrific technical art noir that breathes life into the period. We also feature Malika Steveley in her historical novel, Song of Redemption, a story that emerges when in 1932, devastating secrets are exhumed when the remains of Danielle, a gifted enslaved songstress, are discovered in the wall of a mansion on a Louisiana sugar plantation. What one reviewer calls a riveting page turner that keeps you on the edge of your seat. We feature Patty Meredith in her novel, South of Heaven, which is set in Carthage, North Carolina in 1998, and tells the story of the two estranged sisters forced back under the same roof what one author calls wise and funny and another calls a celebration of growth and survival a beautiful read and we're also going to feature new york times best-selling novelist and charlotte author megan miranda in her latest suspense novel the last vanished which is a story about a small town in the mountains of north carolina where a number of people have gone missing under mysterious circumstances one new york times best-selling novelist calls it her finest an eerie edge of the earth location riveting characters and thrills that just don't quit loved this novel All right. Well, I guess it's time to sign off and uh, go get ready to record another podcast. (laughs) uh, Any thoughts? Any any, any other parting thoughts? I learned a lot today. Yeah. This is an explosion of knowledge. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Take you through the week. Keep, Keep learning out there.